everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 350. Yay! We made it 350 shows. I'm Elsker Zellner, joined as always by my co-host David Bix of Spain and Bix. They said we couldn't make it, and here we are at 350, and it won't be long before we get to 400. Well, well we got I'm... another year in the first, so before then. I'm the reason they said it wouldn't make it, but I mean, it became clear <laughs> that it would after a few, couple months, but... Yeah, because you you peter out of your your side podcast after like two or three months. So. Well, because it's, it's just easier for well, also the formats I tried, and it's just easier to do it with another person and split the duties and as we do and all that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that, but any, but yes. any, but, but anyway, here we are. Yes. Here we are. Now, <clears throat> I want to do some house cleaning real quick. <clears throat> as I clear my throat, damn pollen. All right, so there's been some confusion lately over how we determine Patreon shows. So let me do a real quick um, summary here. All right, when you request a show, 25, 50, 100, you are requesting a show for the weekly show, Okay. The one that comes out every Monday. Patreon shows are not up for request. That's not part of the package. Those shows are what me and Fix decide on, and that's it. Okay? No, you're free to suggest so, topics if you think you're we free might to suggest them well. Yes, you're free to suggest, but your donation right. does not go to a Patreon show. I just want to. I want to clear that up. There's been some confusion recently on that. So I want to make sure everybody knows when they when they decide to put money down what they're getting into. Because, I mean, you can suggest it. And here's another thing, too. And this is one from the past. It has to be in the format. You can't put – say you want, to, you want uh, $25 for us to talk about a person. <laughs> that's not how we do it. We, we can't, we can't, that's not how we do things. It's got to be for a week in wrestling, you know? And if, and, and if there's a subject that we either really don't want to talk about, or it's a subject that is more in line with doing a Patreon show on that subject, then <clears throat> we can make that decision as well. Okay, because there are some subjects that are more adept for being a Patreon show because of the stuff involved where it would be better served in that way. Now, we will, you know, those weeks will do anyway, but it would be after the Patreon show on that subject. That way we can have all the stuff on that subject and then do the rest of the week on everything else. Right. This is stuff definitely for in the 2000s and beyond, so to speak. Yes, yes. And I would even say if we had to do – I mean, you know, the shows came out great and, you know, we were glad that – I forget who it was, you know, that paid, you know, paid for them to do those weeks. But, like, for example, like, you know, with hindsight, maybe would we have rather done the Radicals jumping to WWF as a Patreon show instead of, do you know – covering just the week where everything went down, you know, something like that, for example, is the type of thing where, you know, it, it that would have be worked out better that way. Yes. Yeah. That would have worked out better that way. But, you know, you live it, you live and you learn. 
and that's what we've done. So, yeah, I just want to get that out of the way at the start of the show. That way everybody will, you know, will hear it and know, you know, what to do, what's going on here. Because, you know, we, we definitely want to, you know, fulfill your wish in the best way we can. So, yeah, just want to get that out there so everybody knows what's going on. Yes, and yes, All I right. convinced Chris to get a new headset. <laughs> well, there's but there was some buzzing on the other one. I don't know. Well, it was something happened to it. Yeah, I'm usually well. Okay, so just to, I think I said this on halftime a few weeks ago. I, I on shows where we haven't had a guest, you're not really hearing it because, you know, we just have our two separate audio tracks. I can find the noise sample and it, remove it, and it comes out fine. The thing is, though, when we have a guest. You know, on the file of the recording, they and Chris are on the same file. Skype is constantly shuffling back and forth between the two. It's harder for me to find a segment that's just that buzzing. So we needed to make a change. Yeah, and this is a week where we have a guest. So let's talk about that, shall we? Now, this person approached me a few weeks ago. And said that he wanted to be part of show 350. He hadn't been on in a while. And he wanted to, to make his return on that show. Regardless of what week it was. So I said, okay. I mean, if that's cool. So I looked at the note. I looked at you know what, what week we would do. What would fit. I found the week that would fit perfectly what we've done. I got with him and said, would this be good for you? He said, yes. I was still watching everything at this time. So before I get into the year of the show, let's get into the guest making his return after a few months away uh, since December, actually, uh, due to um, health issues. And we're glad to say that he is doing a whole hell of a lot better. And we'll let him talk about that uh, when uh, the moment comes right for that. But we are joined by the returning King of Kingsport. Bo James. Bo, welcome back. I'm not like Joe Gatto. I will not leave my boys, so I'm back. <laughs> and, and, and I, I got to do you. some house cleaning real fast, too. Over at my Patreon, I don't have all these rules that they got. Send me 20, <laughs> send me 25 bucks, and I'll talk about anybody you want to. $50, <laughs> I'll call you on the phone, and we'll talk about them. <laughs> send, me a, send me 100 bucks and pay the trans. I'll take you for a ride through the mountains and show you where they live lived <laughs> we have a well format, some people <laughs> well some people you're right i don't know if you're gonna do that to garvin <laughs> no Gar- garvin would be uh, probably a uh, five five bills to go to garvin's house <laughs> and and i'm i'm one of three people that know where he lives so I, we would still have to call ahead and there's a possibility we might get shot at <laughs> <laughs> Oh, me, but it's glad to have you back, Bo. It's been too long. I'm happy to be back. I'm happy to be above ground. I'm doing great. I'm a miracle. Thank God. Thank everybody for all the prayers, all the well wishes. Thank everybody that was out there sending me messages. And, you know, January and February was real rough after having the procedure done January 10th. Took me some time. I'm still getting better, still getting stronger every day. Um, Sitting here yesterday uh reading through the notes and i realized that uh i haven't been out i haven't made a town in six and a half months 
as we record this, um, other than two events that were right here by my house in the last few weeks where I, I rode with Wayne Atkins just to go see the boys and show them that I'm alive because there's, of course, you know, telegraph, telephone, telewrestler, all kinds of rumors get out there. And that's yeah. why we, the ones of us that knew about my health problems, kept it totally under wraps until I said, you know, when, when they look you in the face and say you could die right now, you know, then you realize, man, I better tell some people just in case, you know, something happens here. But uh, I feel good. I'm coaching Little League two weeks a day or two days a week, uh, working out two days a week. I have a date circled on my calendar that I circled the night before I went in the hospital in January to be back in the ring. And we are on track for that to happen. So everything is going good. And, you know, I'm happy to do this. I, I have not been on here but I've been here in spirit. I still listen every week and, you know, and, and that brings me to the last weeks when, uh, Vix made a comment about Shaska Pez Watley <laughs> and his looky here comment. That's an East Tennessee comment there, uh, phrase Bix. Okay. But it's not, it's, I it's know, not, okay, it's not, it's not racial. Well, you under, okay. But you understand it's not the racial. context that, that's of the what... Appalachian, yeah. But I was going but by what Nelson was just, saying and stuff. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I no, I, I agree with that. If you don't know, if you don't know, you don't know. But no, that's older people in East East Tennessee. Looky here, who's coming? Mm-hmm. Looky here, who's having the <laughs> birthday? That that's just Pez being Pez. So see, I like to I like got, to educate and entertain. So, so Dave podcasts. then was talking well, more well, about the because, overall interview style and the and the clothes and stuff. I guess. That's Pez. Okay, then, okay, but still, I mean, we were talking in the context of what Dave said at the time. <laughs> yeah, in in his context, but I mean, it's because he didn't personally know him, right, or know where he came from. I mean, you so, gotta remember, but I just Big's, Big's a Yankee, so you know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he's a Yankee, uh, so you know. Plus, you have to remember that my big my biggest exposure to the word to the phrase "looky here" is from like. Stuff like Amos and Andy or uh, the ICOJ prank call and stuff like that. So, unfortunately, up here it does potentially have that connotation. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I, I, I guarantee you, if you if you came came here and I took you down the street to the uh, country store and cafe here, you'd hear it a hundred times from the old men that sit in there for eight to ten hours a day. <laughs> yes, they do that around here too. <laughs> <laughs> I know how that goes. They, they sit around, so, some of these old guys sit around a grocery store for hours on end. So I know how it is. Yeah. So get, hey, give us the dates because here's what I'm going to do. <clears throat> give us the dates of our week because I got my book out. All right. Our week. And yes, nobody knows this as it's a mystery week. Well, actually, nobody wait a we... second. What am I labeling this show as? Well, they, they, they can, know I mean, it's when they open it up. It'll say it'll say what it says normally. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. exactly. Yeah, they will know until they see a hit upload. Yes. So we are discussing. Oh, we, 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 we can always we can always post the wrong dates or just say kayfabe <laughs> after between the sheets. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to do April the twelfth through the nineteenth. It's a eight day week again, nineteen ninety four. And the reason okay. why I say it, reason why, reason why I say eight days. <clears throat> It's because show 38, we did April 5th to the 11th. 
So there you go. Picked up that extra dust. All right. So in our our week, how old would you guys have been, and what would I, you have been doing? I was uh, fourteen, and I was uh, a sophomore. No, was, was a sophomore. I was a freshman in high school during that week. So yeah, I was uh, uh, just going to school, playing basketball when I got out of school, hanging out, stuff like that. Yeah, that's what I was doing. I was nine and. I think my friend who had the illegal cable box would get it within the next couple weeks. Because I don't think I saw this pay-per-view at the time, but I saw Slamboree the week it happened. Yeah, I, I, I would see Spring Stampede, which we'll be talking about that. I would see that uh, like a uh, week or so after. Okay. The dude, okay. The dude that would bring me wrestling was... tapes. To, wrestling tape bring, he would bring me wrestling tapes to church. The stuff he'd take on pay-per-view. <laughs> Would yeah. either of you put the observer I, in the Bible like you were Dennis Corluzzo? No. <laughs> I was I was nineteen, be turning twenty in July, and I had a twenty six year old blonde girlfriend. It was making my life miserable. <laughs> and here's where I was at that week, the twelfth, which was a Tuesday. In my book, it just says rescue squad meeting. So that means I had to meet with a nonprofit who had called and wanted to do a fundraiser. Uh, Duffield, Virginia was running that same night, but I had to pull out of that to go to the meeting to try to set the town up. Wednesday the 13th, I would have been out hanging posters because every Wednesday for decades, I went and hung posters in towns, Mondays and Wednesdays, in case we had a rare event on those nights. Thursday the 14th, I was wrestling in Maryville, Tennessee. Rare Friday the off, nothing wrote on my book for the 15th. Saturday the 16th, double shot. I was in Knox, East Knoxville at a flea market, and it's off Asheville Highway that they ran wrestling at every Saturday night through the spring and summer. And I would have worked there early, then drove across Knoxville, into Loudoun County and worked in Lenore City, then turned around and drove 112 miles to the house. Sunday. Probably watching Spring Stampede because I do remember <laughs> watching it, and I watched it because of one of the big matches that we'll be talking about. Monday, I'd have been back out postering again. Tuesday, I would have wrestled in Duffield, Virginia. So that that was my week. It, it's It's crazy to think back about all this all these years later and now 19 guys years old that, too. Uh, yeah and it already been i've been in the business for five years and i had already been in the ring for four years <laughs> wow and i was living the lifestyle of a wrestler let me tell you at 19 years old <laughs> and i don't mean video games and whatever they do now You're, you weren't streaming twitch <laughs> um no was there was a twitch. I, I mean, there was a twitching going on, but it wasn't. It wasn't just yes. streaming twitch. <laughs> Pharmaceutical boiler makers and <laughs> those nice young girls and ladies that used to sit ringside at the wrestling matches. There you go. There you go. All right. So yes, we are discussing April twelfth through the nineteenth of nineteen ninety four, and uh, WCW leads off. And what a section we got this week. I mean, it is loaded. So let's go get a, into it. 
Hulk Hogan reached an agreement with WCW signed a contract. Due to the terms of Hogan's release for Titan Sports late 1993, Titan has the right of first refusal on any offer given to Hogan to wrestle. Titan now has a 21-day period in which it can match WCW's offer, or else Hogan would sign with WCW and most likely start out at the July 17th Great American Bash pay-per-view in a match against Ric Flair. There's a lot of strategy involved in this, because if McMahon were to believe that Hogan would refuse to combat the Titan, which would be Hogan's option, he could match the offer, block WCW from using Hogan, and it wouldn't cost him a cent. However, if Hogan were to return... Obviously, we are talking about a multi-million dollar offer to a company that is taking severe financial hits at the present time. Not to mention the situation it would create internally if Hogan were to return to the company at this point for a short period of time. No terms have been released on the Hogan deal, although the New England Sports Network, or Nesson, ran a story on Hogan agreeing to the deal, reporting Hogan as receiving $600,000, or 40% of the company's gross, per pay-per-view event. Dave has no idea if those figures are even close. Although, if that figure is correct, for WCW to equal its current profit level on pay-per-view events by adding a deal like this to the mix, it would have to increase its buys for all three events Hogan would, will appear on to 227000 or a .99 buy rate, slightly above the level WF has drawn in its past two non-WrestleMania pay-per-view shows, Survivor Series and Royal Rumble. Or it would be a money-losing deal for pay-per-view. While it's inconceivable, a first Flair Hogan match correctly promoted would do that business, it would be a lot more difficult to average that over three shows. Now, several weeks back, multi-channel news in an article about WCW potential acquiring Hogan got feedback from major pay-per-view companies in which the consensus was Hogan would add to WCW's buy rates, but even with Hogan, they would trail WWF. It's not unusual for companies to pay above the figure that would be profitable in certain situations that the feeling would be, as it would be in this case, that just having Hogan would also aid them in acquiring television stations, merchandising deals, etc., and thus make money in other ways. Although with Hogan signing what is believed to be a short-term deal rather than a long-term deal, that may not be possible. Based on information we received, it's believed the deal for Hogan will be short-term, probably debuting at the June Clash and have his first match on the July pay-per-view, and lasting through February 1995 to include three pay-per-view shows, three Clash appearances, a U.S. house show tour, and a European house show tour, and that most of the money is based on percentages, and that deal could reach $4 million dollars although that figure is no doubt based on huge increases in business on every show he appears. It is believed that the producers of Thunder in Paradise, which drew a 5.4 rating of syndication this past week, good for 19th place among all syndicated shows, are looking at not only reviewing the show based on early ratings, but filming more than 30 episodes in 1995, which pretty much given the time constraints makes it extremely difficult for Hogan to be involved in much wrestling next year. So whatever this is will not be for the long haul. Now, Alan Sharp, Talk to the torch about this. WCW spokesman Alan Sharp confirms that a deal is, appears to be nearly done for WCW to gain the services of the biggest superstar in wrestling during the 80s, Hulk Hogan, for a series of limited dates. Sources say an agreement in principle has been reached, and now it's a wait and see attitude as Hogan's former day of contract stipulates Titan Sports head, Miss Man, has 21 days to match the offer and regain Hogan's services. It is considered unlikely that McMahon will match what is said to be a deal in the millions of dollars with generous cuts of merchandise and pay-per-view revenue. McMahon, in a tactical move, might match the offer only with the idea that Hogan would not accept returning to WF and thus would just sit out of, sit out of entirety. Not the deal of it entirely. Because WCW knew there would be a 21-day grace period, it brings into question the ethics of virtually assuring his appearance at Spring Stampede. 
had Hogan appeared at ringside, it would have increased uh, McMahon's incentive to match WCW's offer, just to make WCW look bad for promoting Hogan and never delivering. If Hogan didn't appear at ringside for other reasons, WCW's insinuation is not right speculation on Hogan's appearance is still questionable. Ethically, Sharp says, WCW is optimistic about Hogan being part of WCW. Thought within the industry, although much of it speculative, has Hogan received a generous cut of revenue from one pay-per-view? Numbers are certainly as high as 40% of WCW's cut. A $600,000 signing bonus and merchandise revenue all totaling potential around 3 to $4 million. In exchange, Hogan will wear TV tapings, two clashes, one pay-per-view, and perhaps select house show dates, all being in 1994. And real quick, there was definitely some truth to the idea of HBO talking with Hulk Hogan about doing a limited amount of wrestling, despite repeated denials from the company. This is Dave here, but Dave doesn't think anything ever got past the extremely formative stages. All right, Bix. So, what deal did Hogan actually sign on this first deal? Do you have the numbers on that? No, we do not have the actual contract for the first deal. We have for the 98 deal. Okay. So we only have whatever ends up being reported in the Observer. Do you want me to pull up the Hogan Patreon show notes? Well, I mean, if I mean, you can if you want to. Okay. But, I mean, you look you look at this, and how different is everything in this if WCW put Hogan in the crowd at Spring Stampede? Does that get make Vince want to? Decide to fuck with them? I don't... And out of spite? I'm also not convinced that if... That that's how... I don't think Vince can match the deal and then not sign him. I think Dave's wrong about that. Not necessarily. He could make a match deal and say... And and say, okay, we're not going to use you. Oh, you mean... Well, no, he's not going to... But he'd have to pay it. Uh, Well... And knowing how these Hogan deals were tiered and stuff? Uh... Yeah, but we've seen them do that recent times. I mean, look at look at Mustafa Ali right now. Well, that's I know he's yeah, not Hulk Hogan, but still, I mean it's not that's something to, you know, that's not something that that's not past them what they would do. Okay. So here's what's in the June sixth observer. Uh, according to a source through WWE, which should know because Vince McMahon has seen the contract because he had the right to match it, although he that doesn't mean once the info reaches here it's going to be 100% correct for obvious reasons. The real provisions for Hogan's deal or the contract expires December 31st, 94, so it's basically a six-month deal, three clashes, three pay-per-views, $300,000 per show. In addition, he'll receive 25% of any pay-per-view revenue increase based on the current average revenues. At the house shows he's working, which are believed to be limited to about a half dozen U.S. house shows and one European tour, he will receive 25% of the house each night. He will receive 65% of all merchandising income, which is an astonishing figure because 30% of merchandising goes directly to the arena and the cost of merchandising and payment of royalties to the merchandise company would make it so WCW would actually lose a few points for every Hogan merchandise item sold. I think that's Dave confusing arena and catalog merchandise with licensed merchandise, though. Um, so he's guaranteed $1.8 million. Break-even on pay-per-view shows right now is about 700000 or about a 0.3 buy rate, adding Hogan's guaranteed money, plus including the guarantee on the clash building up the show, uh, ups break-even to $1.3 million, 116,000 buys, or a 0.52 buy rate, or neighborhood of what the recent shows are doing, 
uh, without Hogan, every pay-per-view show, with the possible exception of Battle Bowl, has been a money banker. Although the shows don't earn enough to offset the losses and other aspects of running the company. For the group, throwing in the guarantee and percentage to earn the same amount of money on pay-per-view shows that they were before Hogan came in. Three pay-per-view shows he works will have to average a 0.87 buy rate, which no one in the industry, Dave, has talked to even believes to be a possibility. How how much of the money was actually WCW money and compared to TBS money? Okay, so I actually can answer this. And it's it's guesswork, but it's seems fairly reliable. Um, so from the documentation we have from the WCW contract stuff, from the discrimination lawsuit, but also um, his, the 98 contract that was in there, it looks like his payoffs for house shows, merch, licensing, and TV tapings, because once Nitro and Thunder were in the mix, I don't know if this was on an earlier deal or just the 98 deal, he's making like 25% of the house, or I forget what the minimum was, maybe 20000 or maybe twenty five grand, I think, for Nitro and Thunder tapings. Um, so TV payoffs and house shows and merch and licensing appear to be on the WCW books. Pay-per-view does not because every year we have payroll for him, his payroll is less than what his minimum guarantee in those years would have been for pay-per-view, Rel- you know, based on the 98 contract. So that I feel like that kind of meshes with what we had always heard, which that at least some of it was on the Turner Home Entertainment books, and it would make sense the pay-per-view stuff would be on the Turner Home Entertainment books because of all the existing self-dealing with WCW and Turner Home Entertainment over the pay-per-views. Right, Chris? I think that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's a hell of a damn deal, you know? No wrestler ever got a deal like that before. You yeah, know? In terms of a guaranteed percentage, it's... The, these Hogan deals have to be the biggest in wrestling history. Absolutely. And as we said before, whether we like it or not, you know, especially people like me and Bo and WCW being our Southern wrestling, I mean, WCW had to make that deal for their business. Yes. You know, it got them where they were. They were actually now a viable national wrestling promotion because they really weren't up until then. They were still Southern wrestling. They, uh, yeah, the media and advertisers and casual fans looked at WCW in a different way once Hogan came aboard. The true diehard fans looked at WCW a different way once Hogan came aboard because then they started thinking, well, this is kind of like the AWA in world class a few years earlier when everybody else was done in Crockett in New York. They started showing up at those promotions because nobody else wanted them because the real diehard fans and listen to how he's booed out of the building. In the South, they looked at him as the enemy and as washed up when he first came. And it did help he looked old, too. Right. And, and I, I remember a wise old wrestler named Rick Connors in the dressing room when the boys were talking about Hogan's going to Atlanta. And Connors said, 
they're going to boo him out of the building every night in Knoxville, Charlotte, Atlanta, you know, all the towns that were the holdovers of Crockett Promotions in the other territories. And he said, there's no money in Hogan versus Flair in those cities because Hogan ain't doing a job and it's just going to infuriate the fans to where they don't come back the next time if Flair's losing. And then Rick Connor said, if I was in charge, I would turn Hogan heel, take the red and yellow off of him, put him in the black and silver like he was when he first came to Tennessee and make him the outside heel. It took him a few years to get to that, but that's what happened, and it made money. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It did. I, I, but, I mean, you, you think about those, even the early Nitros, how badly he was booed out of some I of the I was cities. there. Macon, Georgia. Hogan and Sting. I was there. when he. That was when he was doing the Dark Side Hogan gimmick, and they, I mean, that, that place hated his guts. <laughs> they hated him. So absolutely, and he's going against Sting, and then you go to the Carolinas yeah. and put him against Flair and Arn. I mean, what do you expect? You know, one of the one of the syndicated TVs because they were doing a lot of them in Knoxville at this time. So right around this time, when he actually signed and they could announce publicly that he had signed, they made that announcement and they booed like crazy in the Knoxville Coliseum. <laughs> And people were like physically upset. No, we don't want him here. Yeah, he was he was old. He was passe, and it wasn't until they put that fresh coat of paint on him is when he really became a draw to the masses. Yeah, so to speak. But uh, it is funny though, Bix. Here we go again. Always with Hogan, there's always some other angle. Here's HBO <laughs> at this time. You know, being mentioned as talking to Hogan about doing some wrestling. And don't forget, he was talking to uh, Hiro Matsuda and Howard Brody about the Ring Warriors plan they had with 4Kids Entertainment, too. Mm-hmm. Always something with Hogan. So, always got, always had irons in the fire. Absolutely. All right, uh, Saturday Night Live did a comedy sketch about steroids over the weekend with characters with steroid side effects doing wrestling style interviews and one dressed up like Hulk Hogan. <laughs> so there you go. Even SNL getting their digs in on Hulk. I think this is the like bodybuilders talk show sketch with Jay Moore and some other people where they're all like in a thing where they have fake legs to make them look like stereotypical bodybuilders, like wannabe bodybuilders who don't work their legs or something. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen the sketch, but I remember reading the description in Jay Moore's book. You definitely can't find it online. You have to go <laughs> on YouTube. So there you go. Good luck. Uh, SNL clips on YouTube don't last very long. All right. Well, so now let's move on from Hulk Hogan to one of his enemies. World Championship Wrestling announcer Jesse Ventura, a.k.a. Jim Janos, was awarded $809,958 in his lawsuit against Titan Sports. Launching for videotape royalties by St. Paul Jury on April 13th. And now we go to the Pro Wrestling Torch. The $810,000 figure, rounded up, is based on 3% of all videotape sales. 
The percentage chosen by the jury is based on what Ventura negotiated in his current deal with Turner. The jury used that as an example of what Ventura likely would have bargained for in the WWF. Ventura hired Wes Anson, who works for a company that's hired to decide what celebrities are worth in sponsorship deals. Because of Anson's analysis, Ventura originally asked for over $2 million, but the jury decided Ventura was worth less than that. Titan used that publicly as consolation to their loss. Certainly would have liked more, but the jury was fair, Ventura said. While the verdict of the seven-women jury, which deliberated for seven hours before coming up with his verdict, was a major courtroom loss for Titan Sports. The most significant damage that could come out of the suit to Titan Sports, a potential landmark decision that would have opened the floodgates to virtually every performer from the mid to late 80s heyday, was avoided when the jury failed to award Ventura money for personalized action figures, which, had he won on that specific point, would have been a landmark decision virtually every performer during that time period could have sued over. The jury awarded Ventura 801333 for royalties for his announcement work on 90 videotapes, ruling that for Titan Sports had lied to him in negotiations and thus induced him into making an agreement fraudulently. Therefore, legally, the agreement between the two sides in which Ventura agreed he wasn't entitled to any royalties or videotapes containing his commentary was considered nullified. The judge ruled his contract as a wrestler, which is the only contract Ventura ever signed with Titan Sports, wasn't valid to carry over into his announcing work. Ventura's contract as a wrestler, which jury considered valid, also would have enti- not have entitled him to videotape revenue. It is believed that the current Titan Sports wrestlers' contracts do contain provisions for videotape royalties. Because of that, Ventura was entitled to what was considered fair market value of such royalties. Ventura's attorney, Alan Eitzness of St. Paul, uh, uh, asked for approximately $1.2 million as fair market value for such royalties, which Titan Sports had claimed the figure as being $150,000. And the jury came up with this figure through its own deliberations. The key point in the case, which lasted more than two weeks, is that the jury believed that Ventura's negotiations with Titan Sports regarding announcement matches that were to be videotaped, such as pay-per-views, Coliseum, video, special main events, he had agreed he wouldn't receive royalties on the videotapes because Titan had told him in negotiations that no other performers had received or were receiving royalties for videotape sales except in cases when videotapes were marketed based on a specific wrestler's name, such as Best of Jim Duggan. The tapes in which Duggan would get royalties on, but not generic tapes in which wrestlers appearing in matches or on tapes or pay-per-view shows. In the discovery process of the case, it was determined that Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant, Mr. T, and Sidney Lauper, and perhaps others, had received and were receiving royalties on from sales of generic tapes, and thus Titan had lied to Ventura in negotiations, rendering Ventura's agreement with the company void. Dick Glover, who was the Titan representative who relayed the Titan policy in the late 80s to Ventura's agent, even testified he didn't know Hogan was receiving royalties. Thus, apparently, he was misinformed by the higher-ups who knew of the royalty situation. Ventura also received a small slip on royalties from calendar video game sales. He sued for and did not receive royalties for doll sales. He signed away his rights to royalties on dolls in his 1986 contract agreement. Ventura claimed he signed a deal under duress since he testified that Gorilla Monsoon told him, sign this or you're out of a job. In Minnesota, threat of loss of job is not considered grounds for legal duress, while physical threats, for instance, is. There is no indication of whether Titan Sports will appeal the decision, although Ventura doesn't believe they will. Since the loss of dolls, Ventura told the torch, there's no reason to appeal. The jury also awarded Ventura $8,625 for other merchandising, a calendar poster of him, and a computer game with his likeness on it, none of which he had received payment for. Ventura, 42, 
Stars announced for WF in 1985 after a blood clot in his lungs temporarily curtailed his wrestling career where he had been in top heels since the late 70s, particularly the old AWA with WWF. When he quickly gained more fame for his quick-witted heel commentary than he did as a wrestler, combined with the job being physically less taxing, he retired as a wrestler in 1986 but continued as an announcer to, with Titan through July 1990. When he was fired by McMahon, over McMahon telling him he couldn't accept an offer to do his own wrestling video game and him refusing to bat down. Early in 1992, Ventura signed a lucrative two-year deal with NWCB Executive Vice President Kip Fry. After it, it had expired, a new deal was reached earlier this year. Ventura asked for more than $1 million in the suit, which he filed in November 1991, not only for videotape royalties, but also for other merchandising, including personalized action figures. Ventura, who had to leave in wrestling going to Hollywood, learned that the split of 75-25 of royalties in favor of the company above the individual was the exact opposite of the split for selling merchandise in Hollywood. Ventura had argued that he had signed his wrestling contract, which stipulated that split under duress and was asked for fair market value, or roughly double the total amount he received from all doll merchandising checks. The jury ruled that specific contract was binding. This ruled against the additional revenue, which was the biggest risk Titan took by not selling the suit ahead of time before a landmark ruling could have been issued, which literally would have opened the floodgates to every ex-WF wrestler during that time period. The wrestlers were like serfs. I said in AP story, the Kings were the ones that made the decisions. The jury decided the Kings were wrong. Mark Gender, an attorney representing Titan Sports in the case, was quoting the same story saying that Titan was very disappointed, although the jury significantly reduced Ventura's request of over $2 million. Gender said that Titan Sports denied any misrepresentation of his royalty policy. Now, in an article in the St. Paul Pioneer Press, Ventura said he hoped the verdict would send a message to wrestling promoters and organizations like WF. I'm hoping it brings to light what's going on in the world of wrestling. Wrestlers have never been allowed to unionize. Wrestling evolved from the carnivals. They've tried to keep us back in those carnival days. Now, Torch talks about Vincent Mann. said Vincent Mann did not testify because he resides more than 100 miles away from the courthouse, so he could not be called to testify by the plaintiff. Because he did not testify, Judge Paul Magnuson instructed the jury that since McMahon had direct knowledge of the situation, he did not testify, that they would assume his testimony would have been detrimental to his case. Every person I talked to the last two years said I wouldn't be able to beat Vince, Ventura said. Even my wife told me that. But it's a poker game. And I looked at what he had showing and what I had showing and decided to stay in the game. I felt I was lied to and cheated, and the jury agreed with me. Ventura, who he had, who had any loss would have been out of $150,000 in legal fees, said he was fortunate to be able to afford the challenge type because of his financial status. But Ventura doesn't believe there'll be a string of re related follow-up civil suits by other wrestlers and announcers. I feel bad for Gene Oakland, Gorilla, and Lord Alfred because they signed an announcer agreement eight nine ninety that I refuse to sign. Ventura said they signed away their rights. If wrestlers never asked what Titan's policy was and thus were misrepresented, they would not have a case. If they did have a case, because most aren't other celebrity status or Hogan, Miss T, or Jess Ventura, they would likely not get a percentage as high as three percent, but rather would get a cut of the pool divided among all wrestlers. Ventura may have been the first Titan performer to use a legitimate manager, manager or agent to deal with, McMahon, and thus secured his legal rights in the situation. Most wrestlers still don't use agents to negotiate their deals. There's no word yet on whether Titan plans to appeal. All right, Bix, there's a lot there, so go ahead. Okay, first things first, how are they even denying that they misrepresented the royalty policy to him at this point? <laughs> in the media, like what? Does that surprise you? No, but <laughs> come on. That's ridiculous. <laughs> like, what the hell? Come on. <laughs> what? 
It's right. Like, I mean, the, the, what we had here from the newsletter is pretty clearly laid out what happened. So, like, the basic basic merits of the case, I don't think there's that much to add. But, like, come on. Now, as far as the people tell him he couldn't beat Vince, um, I don't know if it would have gone differently with different representation. But the reason that McDevitt and his firm are not representing them here is that he and his people are devoting all their time pretty much to the steroid trial. Which, at this point, was a scheduled to go to trial in a couple of weeks, wasn't it? May the second, I think. Yeah, and then it gets pushed back to July. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's tricky because they have this concentration of cases or other bad legal moves, like signing the deal with the World Wildlife Fund, that they probably shouldn't have concentrated and you know linda even in court blamed the world wildlife fund deal on all the energy they were putting on the steroid trial but i don't know if mcdevitt would have won this do you like it seems like this is just such a clear-cut case of them messing up i don't put anything past mcdevitt but yeah it's possible and now with uh charles austin and the you know rocker dropper you know spinal injury case that I could see McDevitt having a better shot because the problem with the lawyers they got was their defense, the WWF defense, was that wrestling is inherently dangerous and assumed risks, etc. You know, there's the argument that Austin took the move wrong, etc. The problem is, and as Austin's lawyer explained it to me when I wrote an article about it for Deadspin a few years ago, they're just a few years removed, especially at the time of the injury, a few more years at the time of the trial, but especially at the time of the injury, they're barely removed from the deregulation push, which was about how safe pro wrestling was as a show. Yeah. So he has all this testimony from, you know, you know, state senates and state houses and stuff about getting rid of athletic commissions and why and how safe wrestling is, and he threw that in their faces, and it helped, helped them win the case. Now, that, I think, McDevitt would have made a big difference, because I don't think he argues that strategy that the other WWF lawyers did. Yeah. Um, so, Bix, what, what do you think? Do you think this was a fair decision for Ventura, or do you think that he came out on the losing end? You know, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on how all this turned out? I think it was fair, but I'm curious why Vince or whoever lied to Dick Glover. Yeah. Because I feel like that that's a piece of the puzzle we don't really know much about. Um, Trying to remember, do I have anything from his deposition from, uh, from when Chris Harrington got that stuff? Uh, okay, there's an affidavit. Okay, should I read from this? This is just, a, this is excerpts that I have in some notes I took. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, I'm going to skip ahead from the 1985 booking agreement because we've already talked about how the, that was ruled valid. Um, okay, in September of 1987, at, this, at the time I first spoke to Mr. Barry Bloom, Ventura's professional talent agent. Ventura had already completed his wrestling career. When I did speak to Mr. Bloom, the topic of our discussion was Coliseum Video's proposal to do a videotape of Ventura's wrestling matches, not his commentating activities. At this time, I correctly, accurately, and truthfully represented to Bloom the Titan only paid videotape royalties to wrestlers featured, using the definition we already heard on the videotape, that if Ventura agreed to the pro's videotape, Titan would pay him such a royalty. 
Titan conduct, you know, explains Coliseum video and how they made the tapes and blah, blah, blah. The normal royalty scheme, etc. Um, a wrestler was featured in videotape if it was about the wrestler, i.e. Hulk Hogan and Hulkamania, or if the wrestler was the attraction for the main event in a particular exhibition and the exhibition was distributed in its entirety on the videotape. For example, Hogan in the big event. Um... Then there's this. Survivor Series 87 and WrestleMania 4 were not structured around a main event. Rather, Survivor Series was structured or to present a series of main events, and WrestleMania 4 was structured so that the whole show was the main event. Thus, these shows presented a format in which it was impossible, if not meaningless, to determine which wrestlers were featured, because they were all featured. Thus, Titan paid 25%, you know, the, the royalty pool, of its net receipts on videotape sales into a talent pool for all wrestlers appearing on and performing in these cable television pay-per-view shows. Um, just talking about, yeah, laying out more of the same. And then finally in 89, to avoid differences and distinctions as to which wrestlers were featured on videotape, Titan began to pay 25% of its net receipts as video on videotape sales to all wrestlers appearing on the videotapes, and that policy is still in effect. Ventura's assertions that Titan misrepresented its policy as to payment of videotape royalties to wrestlers featured on the videotape is simply not true. Um, so you get the idea. So Glover was basically claiming that his representation was if we do a best of Jesse Ventura as a wrestler videotape, he gets paid because he's featured, but never explicitly said that they only pay the royalties to those who are featured, but Jesse won with the jury and won the appeal, so it seems like he had enough evidence that they did not believe the Richard Glover affidavit and stuff. So, Real, real quick before I go to Bo, do you think it was a diff big difference that the jury was all women? I don't know. That That's above my period. What well, considering what this is, I mean, and, not, and being the time period that we're in, you know, I mean, I don't know. But <clears throat> Bo is one of the boys. I mean, when you see something like this and what Ventura is doing here and what's going on, what do you think as uh, somebody in the business? <laughs> it's a double-edged sword because I've also been a promoter all of my life. Yeah. So, you know, there's always the old rule of, of a wrestler, make sure you get a guarantee. And then there's a promote as a promoter, the rule is make sure you don't have to give them a guarantee. So it's it's always a struggle back and forth. Uh I the thing that I don't understand, how were they getting guys to sign away their royalties to their action figures in eighty six? No one what they made off the first, you know, Iron Sheik and Hogan and, and Andre and those guys made off the first sets that came out. So did it say explicitly uh, that he was not entitled to action figures on the wrestler contract? I mean, it, was, it sounded like it was implying that. Yeah. Let me see if there's anything I haven't did done. He sign, did he sign it away when, when Gorilla said, sign it or you're out of a job? Um, the jury, well, it said the oh. jury failed to award him money for personalized action figures. I mean, this is in the Observer story. Yeah, yeah, wait, this is the Observer story we were reading anyway that I have in these notes. Uh, 
I mean, yeah, that confuses me because we've always heard that all those guys got paid big money for the action figures. Yeah. Maybe they did later. When did when no, the did the Jesse first figures in, come out? Well, the first figures come out. And it was pretty early, mid eighty five, I think, or mid to yeah. Like yeah. summer to early fall, I guess. Yeah, the, yeah, before the holiday season. Yeah, because I mean those those first the first royalty checks off of those all the guys that got them they still talk about them today. So and Jesse was in what the second series? Yeah, yeah, he was in the second series. Yeah. And uh, so right away they started trying to figure out a way to keep guys from having to pay them their royalties because if they could keep that much for themselves. Um, But how anybody would believe that no wrestler was getting this or this or that in the company that Hogan was in, you know, because everybody knew Hogan was making royalties that nobody else was making. Yep. Um, I mean, he, he, he had, he had a different payoff scale and different figures in just like we just talked about. He always had something that nobody else had. And well, how about, how about the fact that they wouldn't, that Jesse was always in their wrestler contract, not an announcer contract. Yeah. That's another thing. That's, to be well, no, 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 it's that. not that it's that he never got a new contract for being an announcer. Yeah, but it said he was under a wrestler contract the whole time he was an announcer. Right, but they ruled that it, the the court ruled, well, the jury ruled it didn't apply to his announcing duties. Uh, well, I'm, I know that, but I'm saying why he was in WWF, though. He yeah. never was on a separate deal. He was always a wrestler. But he's not being, well, no, but he's not being paid on, like, the terms of the wrestler deal. It's just they never really had a new, fully executed contract. I wonder what kind of contract mean gene was on <laughs> obviously not a good one according to jesse <laughs> yeah but i mean he, he had to have some uh, he had to have an, an announcer contract mm-hmm. yeah. oh so jesse here's the jury. talking about lord lord Alfred and gorilla you know and and Oklahoma. Yeah. so here's the here is the jury form by the way just to make it clear what the jury ruled on okay question number one misrepresentation do you find by the greater weight of the evidence that a, Titan made one or more material false representations to Jesse Ventura's agent, jury, yes. B, at the time it made any such <clears throat> material false representations, Titan knew they were false, or made them without knowing whether they were true or false, jury, yes. C, Titan made material false representations with the intent to induce Ventura to act uh, in reliance on them, or made them under circumstances in which Ventura was justified or relying on them, jury, yes. D, Ventura believed the representations and justifiably relied and acted on them, jury, yes. And E, Ventura suffered damages as a direct result and action upon the representations of force, jury answered yes. Now, if they answered yes to each of the five parts of number one, then we get this, so we do. Uh, Number two, and then if they had answered no, they would go to question number three, but we have number two, which was, what amount of money will fairly and adequately compensate Ventura for any videotape compensation of his commentating and announcing, excuse me, performances by Titan? And that's the number we read earlier, the $801,333.06. And question number three is then, uh, do you find by clear and convincing evidence that Titan and Jesse Ventura terminated the 1985 booking agreement? Here we go. This goes to what you were asking about. 
either by mutual non-performance, by entering into a new contract inconsistent with the 1985 book agreement, or by taking other action inconsistent with the continued existence of the 1985 book agreement. Yes. So then we go to number four. Uh, when, according to the greater weight of the evidence, do you find that they terminated the 85 book agreement? Oh, when did they, when did you do it? Uh, and the jury said March 86. So I guess that's when they decided for sure that he's not wrestling anymore after the short-lived comeback. Well, he leaves not long after that. That's when oh, that's right. Gone that's the predator. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Uh, number five, uh, blah, 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 greater way of the evidence that Titan exploited Ventura's name, voice, or likeness as a wrestler in connection with merchandise other than videotapes after the date you gave in the answer to question number four. Jury, no. So when did series two of the LJNs come out? 86. Before March? Uh, I don't know if it was before March, but I know it was in 86. Okay. It was earlier, it was earlier in 86. Uh, number six, Greater Way of the Evans, blah, blah, blah. The Titan exploited his name, voice, or likeness as a commentator in connection with merchandise other than videotapes after that date, or ES. Um, and then what amount of money do you think he could be compensated for that? The jury went with, was this $8,625.60? And yeah, that's the end of the jury questionnaire. Hmm. Not the questionnaire, the jury form. So... Yeah, just went to beat the WF. I mean, that's what that's, that's what it is. So there you go. Yeah. I mean, who, should... who has been uh, who's been in more lawsuits, Ventura or Buddy Landale? <laughs> so let's see. For different Jesse, reasons. Okay, so we've got this. We've got the Chris Kyle thing. Uh, what else? We got the Vern lawsuit that we don't really I was know much about. He was right? a... Yeah. Yeah. So he. Yes, he's had much more high-profile lawsuits than Buddy. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's anyway, a nature boy. Yeah, they get in legal trouble. All right, so... Oh, I'm, I'm talking about Buddy suing people and winning. <laughs> oh, in that way. Okay, I thought about maybe Buddy yeah. getting sued. No, Buddy, Buddy... Buddy was a career plaintiff in... <laughs> Well, I mean, hey, if if you're if if you're successful in doing it, why not? Terry Gordy's car wreck, <laughs> uh, falling on the ice in New York City in the hotel. Yeah, two or three other car wrecks. Buddy's had at least five. Mm. Well, and won was, every one of them. <laughs> there you go. It was also a big week for WCW besides reaching the preliminary agreement with Hogan and putting on a spectacular pay-per-view event on April 17th in Chicago. As Vice President Eric Bischoff also reached two-year contract agreements with Steve Austin and Brian Pillman. Bischoff also reached a very limited deal with Eastern Championship Wrestling, which resulted in Arn Anderson and Bobby Eaton shooting an angle at the April 16th ECW Arena show to set up them wrestling on the May 14th card. In addition, Tuco Scorpio is along with the company, and WCW was featuring a story about Missy Hyatt's firing on the April 19th edition of A Current Affair. What a week, huh? So let's start with Pillman and Austin. <clears throat> Both Pillman and Austin had met with Titan Sports in recent weeks and tested the waters with All Japan, and were considered somewhat likely to lead the promotion. It's believed Austin's contract calls for 200 days minimum. At present rate, WCW won't put 200 shows, so he'll get his minimum per year at $1,000 a show which would be a slight raise from what was believed to be the $190,000 base per year deal he was under. 
although both contracts probably had several bonuses worth in, so comparing flat figures could be misleading. Puma's contract calls for 185 days per year. No reliable money figures have been speculated on, although this would be in the ballpark with the previous deal. The failure of Titan to pull the trigger on the deal in a large part is because of the perception that Titan is an organization that has a more unstable future than WCW, despite its huge lead in popularity and revenue. In addition, as many have cited, besides guaranteed money and advantage of working with WCW, is that even though the wrestling itself is tougher physically, the travel schedule is far less grueling, particularly Titan running a larger and larger percentage of its shows on foreign soil, making going to Titan less enticing than ever for wrestlers with families with the WCW option. Given all that, McMahon's inability to pull the trigger on deals he certainly would have years ago was still surprising, especially with WCW making so many key acquisitions from his stable over the past six months. The Torch has more in- input on this. <clears throat> Sources close to both say that Pillman and Cypher are around the same as his previous contract, 225 each of two years, while Austin received a raise moving from 200 to 265 and 300 the next two years. Keep in mind, whenever figures are printed such as this from reliable sources, WCW manager often claims they are laughable and out of line. Well, as the contract's probably released, there's no sure way of knowing who's telling the truth. Alan Sharp told the Torch Friday there were still details to work out in Austin's agreement, although other sources say the deal was as good as done. There was talk as late as Thursday before the pay-per-view that Pillman was going to be replaced by the Patriot Spring Stampede because he was leaving WCW. Well, how about that, Bix? Um, it is interesting. Because it seems like if WWF wasn't going through all their shit, they probably would have signed Pillman in Austin. And boy, how different is wrestling if that happens? A lot. <laughs> a whole hell of a lot. We don't get Austin and, Ke- and, and Kevin Owens at WrestleMania in a retirement match, I tell you that. Probably not. Um, interesting that... Okay, do we think... Pillman is not talking to Dave about his contract, or we, do we think Dave is going out of his way to hide that he's talking to Pillman about his contract? I think the latter. Way don't care. <laughs> well, also, well, source is close to you also. I can guess who one of those was. Mark Madden. <laughs> yeah. Um, the dates thing is interesting. Like, wh- why are they on these big, so many dates contracts anyway? Yes, WCW, 1994. <laughs> they ain't running no house shows like that. No. That's a weird one, too, you know, when I've seen that pop up. It's also just interesting in the context of that Pillman is such a lame duck, freelance baby face at this point. It, at one point, um, if I'm remembering right, it actually wasn't days. It was matches. Uh-huh. And it was being reported, it was being reported as days because a lot of people don't realize that, you know, they have three matches, four matches at a taping. Oh God. Yes. So that, that may be what it actually was. It may have actually been 200 matches a year. Yeah. That makes 200 instead of 200 days a year. Yeah, it makes way more way more sense that way. But yeah, it would have been interesting to see if if Titan had all their ducks in a row, how hard they would have come after Pillman and Austin, and again, how different it is a wrestling business if they go there in 1994 together. You know, would they have did would they have did any better with them? Because WCW just mismanaged them and dropped the ball. 
Yeah, especially on Austin. Yeah. yeah, there was so much more they could have did with the Blondes, them as a team. Um, Although I just realized, given the state of the WWF at the time, Austin probably feuds with Bret Hart. Anyway. Yeah, but it's a different Austin. Oh, it's probably Stunning Steve or some variation thereof, yes. Yeah, and they're definitely going to be Stone Cold Steve Austin. That's for damn sure. Not, just not at that point in time. Because he ain't gonna cut his, he probably ain't gonna cut his hair, shave his head, and uh, yeah, I mean, who knows? But and then all Japan's mentioned here, you know, which is interesting. Bill and Austin, you know, becoming touring regulars for all Japan. That would have been something in that era. Seeing them, you know, working as Masawa Kawada Kabashi, Taiwei Akayama. I don't know. You don't. I I think they'd be more like a high level all Asian tag title team. I mean. Yeah, probably, but still, they would have their chances, you know? So, anyway, but yeah, there you go. So, Pillman and Austin's re-signed with WCW, and at this time, you know, they're thinking, you know, Flair's booking, you know, Hogan's coming in, you know, maybe we'll be all right. We'll we'll, we'll end up uh, making more money down the road. Well, didn't work out that way for both of them. One because of his own doing, but the other, the other one, you know, injuries and other issues uh, got in his way. So there you go. Tuco Scorpio, Charles Skaggs was let go in the middle of the week after failing a drug, not steroid test, which was more the result of failing several in a row than a singular one. Although it's said to be a firing rather than suspension, it was also said that there is a slim chance they would try and find a loophole to bring him back. Although doing so at this point would be against company policy. An angle explaining his disappearance from the promotion is expected to be shot at the TV tapings this week. Scorpio's luckier than most, and now he'll no doubt receive numerous offers from both the Indies, Japan, and possibly Mexico WF. <clears throat> because of his firing, the company surprised the wrestlers with drug tests this past week. It's well known and obvious in preview that the results are to be adhered to, that several key wrestlers would likely be suspended. So it'll be difficult for the re- results to be adhered to. Be adhered to according to company policy that mandates a six-week suspension for a failure. The last company-wide drug test was nearly one year ago and saw nearly numerous failures and no suspensions. All right. Bo, this, well, real quick, real quick, Bix. Bo, this is just window dressing here. You know, I mean, that's all it is. They use that. They use those drug tests to get rid of guys when they wanted to get rid of them. That's all it was. Yeah. And. and, and they know they couldn't fight it because it's in the contract. So, okay, you you failed it. Um, I had a friend. That's what happened to him. That's why his WCW, they didn't let him go because it, he was doing the same thing the whole time he worked there. But now it was time to go, so go pee in the bottle. <laughs> okay. Yep. You're done. You're done. Go home. <laughs> If I that, guess who when, this when is off got, the air, they, will I be right? Probably. Um, <laughs> but you, uh, when you saw your name, because they would say random drug tests, we randomly drew names. Well, when your name came up, you knew you were getting ready. Instead of starving you out, instead of giving you a notice, because uh, if they gave you notice or they released you, they still paid you for a certain amount of time. You failed, boom, right then, you're not getting another nickel. You're done. 
And and that's all it was used for. Hmm. So, all right, Bix. What I was going to say is um, John Clark's interview with Scorpio and Wrestling Flyers is conducted right after this on May 1st. So here is Scorpio's side of this when it's fresh. Okay, I'm not, obviously I'm not reading the whole interview. I'm going up to the relevant part. So John Clark asks him, the unofficial response from WCW regarding your departure was that you failed several drug tests. Is that accurate? Scorpio. Yeah, it is. The drug test was strictly under marijuana usage. I never did hard drugs. Nothing like that. But then again, that comes back to what you choose to do in your leisure time. Being how it is still an illegal drug, although it isn't as bad as some of the others, it's still an illegal drug. The policy was that it had to be under a certain level, and on the third test it wasn't under. It was over by, like, 72 points or whatever. Yeah, sounds like Scorpio. Uh, any way you look at it, I failed it, so I have to suffer the consequences. Right now, I'm in—excuse uh, me, right now, I was in the process of maybe going to go back in a year or so. So I still need to talk to them and see, because when I left, everything was still on good terms. It wasn't like there was a whole lot of dust kicked up. So Clark asks— do you think that you have selectively been picked out on this? And Scorp says, yeah, I do. Me and a couple other guys that I choose not to name, or excuse me, that I choose not to use their names, felt that we was more likely, or, or excuse me, more or less randomly picked on because of the simple fact that I think a lot of the guys are scared of somebody that has the ability and talent to be a great star. And when somebody else doesn't really want you to be there, they tend to pick on you a little bit. That's what me and a couple of the other guys kind of felt. But then again, it was just a matter if I felt like that, it uh, then I should have done something else. So I'm not really, excuse me, I am not going to really want to say a whole lot on that. And then Clark says, but it is a known fact that others in the company fail tests and get away with it without suspension or dismissal. Scorp answers, Right. There were several guys I know offhand that they signed and that they knew was on steroids and on whatever else, and they knew it and they still signed them. This is the thing that gets me. Not only that, I know that more than 75% of the office smokes pot. So it's not like that's really a big issue. Even if you quit, marijuana does stay in your system up to four years. I don't think that's entirely right, depending on how you no. consume it. And Clark says, isn't marijuana a pretty common drug in the sports world? It is. If you had a choice of having your kid out there doing crack, drinking or whatever, or smoking a joint, you would much rather have him smoking a joint. You ain't got to worry about anybody out there smoking dope and running over somebody. You ain't heard of anybody killing anybody. I've always been against any other types of drugs, but I never went to a drug seminar or I never gave a drug speech to any kids because with me smoking pot, I thought that just wasn't right. I was always for no guns, stop the violence, do not do drugs, but I could never say anything about pot because I knew what I was doing on my own. So Clark says, do you think it's fair for a guy that is in the public eye and is a role model to kids to profess clean living and everything when they are not abiding by that in their own personal lives? I think it's important to put the word out there, but I also believe that if you're not living by it yourself, then you shouldn't go out there and preach that to somebody else and nine times out of ten the guys that you've got up there doing it are usually on steroids or some as i scroll to the top of the next column kind of drug or some kind of amphetamine because that's just how the business runs the thing that got me the most is i can understand if it was coming down to a point where it was affecting my ability in the ring to perform 
or not keep up or put up. But it was never like that. It was always still there's so many guys there that they have that they're pushing and half the guys can't even lace your boots. And Clark says, it seems like you're in a situation where there's nothing you can really do about it unless you want uh, to maybe burn a bridge or like. Right. And I'm not, not so much into burning bridges because other than that, I felt they were messing with me, us a little bit more about the rules who, uh, excuse me, about the ones who smoked. But then again, I know there's so many guys that smoke that's been there for so long and have tested positive for it and are still there. I just don't think that's fair, only because they're top guys and that's who they want. And then it pivots to steroids and stuff like that. So, I mean, look, let's, let's be realistic. He got fired because it's WCW and he's a black guy who keeps testing positive for jazz cigarettes. <laughs> I mean, it looks that way. It looks two, that way. Two things out of that. Well, Two things out what he said there. Yes. Um, I left on good terms. The only thing I had was the P test. That, as I said, happened to people when they wanted to get rid of them. Now, when they bring you back, then they use, hey, we're giving you another chance. Mm -hmm. We don't have as much money for you this time, but we're going to mm -hmm. give you another chance. Mm-hmm. So it was used different ways for different people. 75% of the, of the office is on drugs. Well, he I mean, the guy who... The he well, would, go ahead. Hold, hold on, hold on. He would have not dealt with the people in CNN Center. He would have dealt with the office people on hand. And let's go through them. Rick Flair, Bill Dundee, <laughs> Robert Fuller, Mike Graham, Greg Gagne. <laughs> that 75% might be a little low <laughs> well also the, the guy who signed him to his contract was openly smoking joints in the office <laughs> what yeah <laughs> so uh. but like seriously though I see this and I felt like this for a while especially because at least as far as that made the newsletters, I know you're saying there are more, but at least as far as that ever got out, Scorpio's pretty much the only one that people ever heard about getting fired for failing multiple drug tests, right? In terms of newsletters and stuff. So, yes. yeah. I mean, there's also and the fact that that means they wanted it out, too. Go ahead. That's what I was getting ready to say, and here's why they want that out there. They don't want anybody else to touch him. Well, I go away for go, go away for a little while. Go work the independents. Go overseas. We'll bring you back. We're not going to pay you as much, but we just don't want you to go to Vince. We have nothing for you right now. Well, on top of the fact that's that what it those drug tests were for, could be very well be racially motivated in his case. Another thing, and from a more straight up business perspective, is extra scummy. This had to have killed him with New Japan. Yeah. Because it's Japan and how Japan is with pot and that the two companies are working together. And even though Scorpio was, you know, a New Japan guy, he went through the dojo. He never goes back. No. Ever. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. 
So he goes back to Japan, but yeah, even then, it's also not for what two years when he until it, when he works for Tokyo, Tokyo Pro. Pro, yeah, and then from there, all Japan and Noah and all that. But I mean, I'm just thinking as far as like other like known drug test and drug policy stories. You know, I mean. Was Sherry a drug test, or was she just fired for showing up in no condition to perform? Uh, the latter. Well, she didn't show up that way. She was found that way after. Gotcha. Um, and then that's another thing. It was in the dressing room. Mm-hmm. They knew it was in there, and who was doing what? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like it wasn't like it was hid. If they uh, wanted, to, if they wanted to get like like you said, if they wanted to get rid of you. That was their way of doing it. And, that was the le- way in a le- legal way. So and some of it, this. And the one of them that knew they they weren't going to touch him and weren't going to do anything about it, didn't hide anything. Yeah. And of course, way this just sounds ridiculous now too. Although, in some ways, I mean, well, the it, more. It is ridiculous, but in terms of how some people might look at it, I mean, you know, we saw a couple weeks ago, you know, you were looking on Twitter when that fake story about WWE changing the official drug policy to remove pot was going around. There was a disturbing number of people who acted like it was bad to unban pot under the wellness policy, which is a very puritanical for a wrestling fan in 2022. But also, I feel like it's kind of an ignorance of wrestling history because it was we talked about, you know, a few times on here. And I, oh, I'm kind of curious to see what you have to say about this. I kind of get the feeling that at least in WWF and maybe to an extent in WCW, that officially banning pot kind of could have helped usher in the rise of Somas because... You can't take the most benign thing, so they ended up taking the thing that wasn't being tested for. Like no, the boys that were t- the, the boys that were taking somas were going to take somas no matter what because we loved them. So when did that start, though? The soma era, as far as you know, and your exposure to it, mid nineties. See, that's what I'm saying, though, because it's like it's. <sighs> The timing to me is interesting, though, that it's, you know, a few years into the, you know, the modern drug testing era, at least in the big two. And, you know, there's the story Scott Hall told in a shoot interview about um, on one of his first days in the WWF seeing Brian Nobbs argue with Vince because Nobbs tested positive for pod and was being fined. And Nobbs is just yelling at him like, what the fuck? I can't go back to the hotel and relax. And as Hall told it... Vince said something to the effect of, well, guess you're going to have to drink more and take more pills. Yeah. I could tell you. Go ahead, Bo, real quick. Go ahead. The boys taking somas were not taking them to relax. They were taking them to go out of their mind. Oh, I know. No, no, no. I I get that. I'm just saying. Yeah. And and here's here's the thing. Here's the thing, too, Bix. You got to understand. In some people's minds. They still see pot as that gateway drug to other bigger drugs. So if they're using pot, it won't be long before they go to cocaine and heroin or something like that. There's still that uh, rationale among some people. Yeah. Well, wrestlers, I, though, or? Well, I, I, here, I'll tell you this. 
I've never smoked dope not one time in my life, but I've taken enough somas to put half the town I live in under <laughs> for the winter. It, I mean, something interesting I've noted. Well, I I won't name names, although one of them's public. At least one of them's public about. Like I know multiple wrestlers who are so who are you know sober guys who who do partake because I think they've found that it really doesn't affect them in a way that affects their sobriety, really. Um, you know, I think that's something that's going to be different for every person, but my, uh, my, my personal experience, mine, nobody else, but I'm sure I speak for a few of the boys that are probably not with us anymore. We've seen people on pot. Okay. Then we saw people on somas and said, there, I want to escape this world. I don't want to be high going through this world. I want to be in a coma where nobody can bother me and nobody can talk to me and everybody leaves me alone. Yeah. And, it's and, not, and it, yeah. It's, it's, it wasn't, nobody taking them was taking them because they hurt or they were trying to relax their muscles oh, so or whatever else. it didn't even start else. that way. Okay, that's what I was trying to understand. No. Okay. It was never It was never that. It was soma coma. I've had enough of this day. I can't take no more. See, okay, see, that's interesting. I didn't realize it was like that from the beginning, because, I mean, you got, I got to think, though, that the fact that it was not being tested for by the big two was a factor, though, because it's not a controlled it drug. Was, it, it the, the somas was just kind of under everybody's radar. Well, right, because yeah, like here's here here is when here is when the somas exploded in the wrestling business. Right. When the luchadors came to America, they were bringing them with them. They were bringing them straight out of the factory in Tijuana, fresh. Lay them right on your tongue or like M&M's melt in your mouth. Well, you know what? No, 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 no. I wouldn't blame the luchadors, though, because remember, who was, who do we know was coming across from Tijuana bringing stuff for people? Luis Bacol. Vix, Bo was in the business. <laughs> I know. But I'm saying it's not just them. That's all I mean. No, I'm not. No, no, no. But they, that's where the culture come from. Gotcha. And exposed it to the rest of us. Mm -hmm. I, Buddy Landale, hey, brother, you got to do this. Try this. Don't take more than seven. Don't take more <laughs> than seven. That was always the deal. Don't take the stupid. You take seven, go into a coma, wake up and take seven more. It's a muscle relaxer. Your heart is a muscle. Yeah. Then, then it became... Three somas and lore tab. Then I'll leave his name out of this. Um, <laughs> someone figured out if you take the somas, then you take candy on top of it. The sugar then kicks them even quicker. We experimented to where there was a science on how to get messed up <laughs> on somas. Crazy. Anyway. And, and then if you took them and drank Boilermakers on top of them, look <laughs> out. <laughs> and then guys started dying. Yeah. And nobody, 
and and I'm telling you, I had this conversation with because I was I was kind of the East Tennessee Soma dude, man. I was the guy. And I had a connection to get him from Mexico. We may need to edit that out here in a minute. Uh, <laughs> hey, it's uh, been 20 years. <laughs> Statute yeah, of limitations. Statute yeah, of limitations. <laughs> but guys would die, and nobody said, hey, maybe we should stop doing this, or hey, maybe we should step back and look. It was, well, he didn't know what he was doing. He didn't perfect the science of doing this. Oh, Spicoli, Spicoli died because he took 30 or whatever, or that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he died because he had the morphine patches on his body, plus he cut one open and sucked it out, then That's, took the somers. Right. I forgot, I forgot that he also had the patches on, too. Yeah. Well, that that was a big thing, too. And, I, and when I saw him starting to cut the patches open and suck the stuff out of that, I'm like, yeah, we've. it's like Road Warrior Hawk said. When we started shooting the monkey hormones, brother, we were out of our minds. And when you see stuff like that, you're just like, and and I came, I saw every facet of the wrestling business in the last 33 years, powder and rock cocaine was a major issue in the wrestling business. When I started. Then came the pharmaceuticals. Then uh, the mollies and the ecstasies and the meth and, and all that stuff. To now, if you need a cigarette lighter to burn something on your boot laces, you can't even find a lighter in the dressing room because nobody does anything. Well, no, they're all playing video the, 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 games the, and everything, well, which is which yeah. is great. Well, but, and a lot of the stoners just vape too. Is the other. <laughs> Yeah, the lot. Yeah, they they're on the douche flute. Um, <laughs> they well wait, but, Bo. Do you call it that if it's with a prescription though? I'm making a joke, Bix. So I'm don't kidding. Know. I'm kidding. Anyway, so but here's the thing: the young guys that they, they take more bumps, they do more spectacular stuff than ever. They do. They've got to be beat up. They've got to be banged up, but they're not working every night. These guys at this time period you're talking about now, especially the WWF crews, they're working every night. So, and, and they're dealing with the politics. They're dealing with the nonsense of this right here. Of, if you can be fired for something that everybody else is doing, it was an escape. That soma coma was was the thing i've had friends tell me about their meetings with vince mcmahon to where they were trying to rush to get out of the meeting because their hands started to shake from the somas wow do you think and i think this is part of the stigma too is the big difference in marijuana than any other drug, marijuana and crack, I guess are the other two, but really marijuana, is the fact that you're smoking it and the fact that with other drugs you're yeah. either yeah. taking taking by pill or snorting or something like that. It's the fact that you're smoking something. You're smoking mm-hmm. marijuana. That I think that's the big part of the stigma about it because, yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're eating if, – if, if you're like – 
you know, drinking or whatever. You don't hear nothing about that as far as something like that. I think there's just a, a stigma more towards the fact that you're actually smoking this than anything else. Yeah. Because a guy that, that's put all and the time and effort in his body. And it stinks. That, in both of them. Rock, smoking rock <laughs> stinks, too. It, and it gets in your clothes, and people can smell it on you. And if you're with it and you know what the smell is, you know it. And, no, I've never smoked rock, but I've been around enough of them in my early days in the wrestling business, I, I could tell. I, t- I tell you this. Uh, working, the gro- working the grocery store now, I mean, people smoking weed more than ever. I mean, they come in the store just like they, like they bathed in it. I mean, it is just so fucking yeah. loud. I mean, yeah. it, it, it could take your breath sometimes it's so damn loud. Well, also some of it, depending on what it is, smells a lot worse than others, too. That's what I'm saying, yeah, so... We're, we're talking about, like, you're talking about, like, the bad pot that smells like sweat, basically. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm talking about, like, loud. I mean, that's the name of it, loud, because it smells oh, yeah. loud. <laughs> Stuff like that. I mean, some high-powered high shit, you know, and... God damn! And so you you got that smell, and I think that adds a part of it too. More than anything else, is the whole aesthetic mm. of it. Yeah. I think that's a big part. I mean, if people were t- or taking pot brownies or you know THC oil and shit like that, I, that's one that's one thing that's different. I think as far as the stigma, it's the fact that you're smoking it and that shit stinks. That to a degree, yeah. Now let because you you, you can't smell cocaine. I tell you that. So. Well, I, I, even the boys, if somebody's doing what you're doing, you're going to be drawn to them. And yes. Knoxville, there was where the boys stayed. There was two hotels side by side, nice chain hotels that gave a rate. And one of them was the drinkers and the smokers, the dope guys and and the guys that like to drink. And the other hotel was the cocaine hotel. <laughs> And I don't know if it was ever planned that way, but you know who was staying where just by what drugs they did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot. Here, here's the thing. I love the wrestling business. I was a part of the business part of it, the, the storytelling part of it. I love the wrestling business. I was a fan of, I, for some things don't like the way things are now, but for some things, they are so much better. Uh, you know, like now, you don't have these drug problems. And, I, and I'm not saying that drugs are not still in the business because they will always be. They will always be in whatever business you do for a living that you're listening to me. They're going to be everywhere. It's just part of the world. But I don't think this generation of wrestlers you're going to be reading about 20 and 30 of them ODing or dying of these different things, complications from it, their heart stopped in the night, you know, all this other stuff that you've heard from, from my age and older. Yeah. That's great. And I'm really happy about that, you know, Um, and it's, it's a different world. And just as odd as it is to, um, one of the old Continental guys one time told me, I can't even find a cigarette in here. <laughs> and it just blew his mind. You know, everybody in the wrestling business smoked or chewed tobacco when I started. Everybody did. Yeah. One or the other. Now you don't hardly ever see it. Yeah. 
So, yeah, the, the world's changed, but a, a lot of it, not for the best, but the drug culture and the wrestling business, most definitely for the best. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to Missy Hyatt now. The Missy Hyatt store on a current affair was pretty much a dud, with the show obviously not wanting to break any new ground until Missy files a lawsuit. The story just focused on the photo of her exposed and didn't use any of her comments about the industry, other than it was more backstabbing than Hollywood and that wrestling was a complete fabrication. Highest detailed harassment claims, steroid claims, etc. didn't air, and WCW attorney Alan Sharp was on camera with a no comment. Hyatt claimed in the story that she was not only going to sue the company, but several of her former supervisors individually. And then Dave follows up after actually seeing it the following week. For such a nothing piece, the current affair 7 on April 19th, Missy Hyatt stirred up a lot. There was a, a tremendous initial heat on Katniss Jack for his comments where it came off as he was encouraging Missy in some ways because of Ted's deep pockets. We incorrectly uh, last week referred to Alan Sharp as a company attorney when he's at PR. <laughs> Big difference. Days on thoughts are there's a lack of credibility on both sides. Missy's continually says she's not interested in being in wrestling any longer. Yet also talks of working with WN has contacted other promoters. WCW claims she wasn't fired at a simple letter contract expire, which is the same thing. And there were no future plans for her. However, that line was proven totally bogus because Sherry Martell was brought in as a babyface to manage the Sullivans against Nasty Boys. And the company even taped television that hopefully won't be airing, but you can never tell, with Sherry in that role. The only way Sherry could have worked in the babyface role would be to play off Missy as a heel. To prove that point, with Missy gone, Sherry has been repackaged as sensuous Sherry as a heel managing Ron Simmons. <laughs> that doesn't air either. <laughs> nope. This about face clearly shows that there were plans to begin a Missy Sherry angle as part of the Sullivan's Nasties feud beginning in May. So the line that they had no plans for after February is clearly bullshit. Well, obviously, one thing, Ric Flair definitely wanted to put Sherry with, with, with a, you know, somebody black. <laughs> Yes, even before uh, what Sherry said in her Hall of Fame speech was the OJ gimmick. <laughs> I mean, this right here, you know, she was with Ron Simmons, you know, on the uh, on a set of tapings, and then, of course, ends up being with Harlem Heat. Yeah. So there's that. But and she, she, she really wanted to work with Missy. Yeah, it'd been fun if that would have happened. Yeah. yeah, she never did get to do it. She really wanted to work with her. Yeah, that would have been a fun dynamic, absolutely. Yes. Now, as far as the case, I don't always remember the other allegations and stuff, but look, just for the fact that she walked into the office and there was a photo on the wall with her boob having fallen out of her top at Starcade, of course she deserved whatever money or whatever she got from WCW. Oh, yeah. That's pretty clear cut just on its own. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, not good. Not good at all. So, but anyway, all right. So, Spring Stampede, yes. April seventeenth, from the Rosemont Horizon in suburban Chicago, was an awesome show. Although it had its flaws, there was an inconsistent finish. Over the top rope was called as a DQ, as a finish in one match or ignored another. A clumsy announcement and a post-match explanation for a double pin finish in the main event and the non-appearance of Hulk Hogan, which was promised. On the Saturday television show, as Gene Oakland stated, he had talked to Hogan, who had told him he would be at ringside, which strangely was again plugged during the show. Hogan was actually never scheduled to come to the show, even after the agreement was worked out earlier in the week. So it was nothing more than deceptive advertising on the Saturday show. Shocking. 
plugging again on the pay-per-view was really strange because it only called attention to the fans to the fact that they've been deceived in the hype. Dave, that's me, were disappointed at the end because work rate and match quality from top to bottom ranked with the best pay-per-view shows of all time with not one match below average. This show had an added dimension for WCW, which has put on many pay-per-view shows with great work in recent years, although none of this level since 1993 Super Brawl. A huge rabbit crowd. The last wish the promotion has it before the before this country in more than four years. While called capacity several times on the broadcast, the actual crowd was 12,200 of which about 9000 was paid with a gate in excess of $125,000. The paid crowding gate was the largest for WCW in North America since Ric Flair and Sting's title change at the Great American Fashion Baltimore in 1990. In fact, it was the largest paid crowd to attend the wrestling show at the Rose on Horizon for either promotion in several years. As the late 1991, as the late 1991 first Ric Flair-Hogan WF the same building drew $8,000 paid and $135,000, although Hogan sold out the building. Which holds more than seventeen thousand on several occasions during the peak of Dirt's popularity. Most recently, in '89, for a cage match against Boss Man, and then for the first of the first team at Manchester Chicago. The live crowds will largely be credited to the work of local promoter Barry Fox of Chicago, who came WCW from WF as part of the deal which brought WF's Zane Breslov, his major Western States event promoter, to WCW earlier this year. The first move relative to that deal was to book a WCW pay-per-view show in the Rose on Horizon, a building WF had been able to promote exclusively in since 1985. The paid attendance was roughly triple what WCW has done for most of their pay-per-views over the past year. Bix, here you go. Here's the difference with Zane Breslov and his crew coming in here, already paying off major dividends. Didn't it, didn't it go up a ridiculous percentage like the first month even? Yes. I forget how much, but significantly so. So he's making a big difference already. And you got them in the Rosemont Horizon. Even if they but the, don't come back there, I don't think. But this is Barry Fox, too, you know, be a part of this. Not just Zane Breslau. Mm, yeah, but it's part of his crew. Yeah. The only major backstage commotion regarded Ventura who rubbed at the building completely unaware he wouldn't be doing play-by-play, as apparently nobody in the company had informed him. Although a lot of people were less than thrilled about the Dan and Bonaducci-Christopher Knight match. Ventura opened the show with Gene Oakland with them alluding to his lawsuit victory. You look like a million bucks, Gene said, and telling fans to call the hotline on Wednesday where Ventura would give all the details without specifically mentioning it was a court case against Titan Sports. Ventura and Oakland, both of whom were downplayed as compared with previous shows, were limited to a few locker room interviews. There were numerous comments to us about Bobby Heenan's work being below his level at previous shows. But they didn't see a problem in the until the main event where Heenan threw in comedy at times they should have been still in the drama of the match. Although Tony Schiavone, to his credit, remained focused on the match rather than diverted by the comedy. Um, Yeah, this is the time where Jesse's starting to get downplayed. And uh, Heenan's becoming the A analyst. Yes. And it's also the time where Jesse's wearing suits all the time, too. Yes. Which didn't suit him, no pun intended. No. Um, and also, he was going through some kind of personal issues at the time, too. Yes. Which, as Bischoff explains it. Yeah. So, all right, let's get into the show here. In a dark match, which received a lot of national publicity newspaper gossip sections a few days before the event... Danny Bonaducci, Danny Partridge of the Partridge family, a local Chicago DJ who's been wrestling fan since he was a t- kid TV star, 
beat Christopher Knight, Peter Brady of the Brady Bunch. And a match said to be incredibly horrible to the point it was reverse entertaining as bad comedy. It was a total expose as they were doing high spots and Knight couldn't stop laughing while he was in the ring. Although Bonaducci got a big pup and his appearance sold tickets locally. Next time they do something like this, they should put oversized boxing gloves on them rather than try to give them a crash course in being a wrestler and have botch up high spots. So, as a wrestler, what do you think when, when you see something like this taking place at a major wrestling pay-per-view? Although it wasn't on the pay-per-view, of course. But what do you what do you think about when you see something like this going on? I'd like to break their legs. <laughs> and you know that the DJ thing in wrestling is nothing new. I mean, that, that had been going on, you know, for years. I mean, I've seen that in doing results research. I mean, that stuff was going on in the 70s and 80s where our local radio DJs would get involved in, in matches. But this is kind of different because it's not just a local radio DJ. It's fucking Danny Bonaducci and Chris Knife and the Brady Bunch. It, it, you think about celebrities and what they allowed celebrities to do in WCW over the years. Yeah. So they had to know this is going to be the worst of the absolute worst to not allow it to be shown on the pay-per-view. Exactly, yeah. They they had to know this is Somebody had to talk to them or something and go, there's no way we can even mention this during the pay-per-view. Because um, I don't think, unless you lived in Chicago, you knew anything about it outside of there did until you read... <clears throat> The yeah, they reports. never never promoted it on TV. Yeah, right. So they 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 had to know it was bad. Um, I understand why they did it to get the publicity and get the stuff. Uh, but yeah, I'm just I don't like it. But what are you going to do? Yeah, I mean it's like it's like one of those things where it only took place in front of a small amount of people. Basically, that's just live fans. That's it. You know, it's a shit that was done as a Chicago hook because he was a popular DJ in Chicago at the time. Yeah, which, you know, Bo's right, though, Bix. It is crazy that they didn't try to promote this and make a deal about this to get publicity. It is weird. Yeah, I always found but that. But it's WCW, right. everybody. Considering that uh, the Brady Bunch was still on TBS. Yes, very heavily. And- on TBS. And the, my, well, the Partridge family might have even been on TBS early in the mornings, too, then. I think it had I different remember. runs. I mean, they had yeah. different runs. Yeah. But, I mean, here, here's here's a connection to two TBS classics from over the years. And 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 this is the time period where that, you know, that stuff was 20 years nostalgia. So the people that was watching that show were, you know, when they were younger, they're now in their thirties or whatever, and they got the money and stuff like that. Yeah. They got jobs. They'll pay to see, uh, old Peter Brady punch, uh, uh, in the mouth. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. But anyway, a memorable, and and this shows like, this is part of the memorable things on the show. Even though nobody ever saw it, that was only the soul here live. That's the funny part about it. So there you go. All right, another dark match featured the Sullivans, Kevin and Eva had Dave, beating Pat Tanaka and Haito, Paul Diamond, doing his knockoff Kato gimmick, and a match that's going to be pretty bad, with Eva tearing his knee ligaments during the match. 
If he's out of action for any length of time, it destroys months of taped and advanced television angles. Although at press time, we didn't have word on how long he'd be out of action. Well, he's out of action for quite a while, because that's how Katniss gets involved here with Sullivan. Yeah, he's out till what? And that was always... Yeah. Go ahead. That was always a big discussion in the dressing room when they started doing these tapings where they were taping so far ahead of what happens if somebody gets hurt? What happens if somebody dies? Mm-hmm. You know, then what are they going to do? And here's a perfect example of it. At least it, it worked out for the better here because Cactus got involved. Yeah. But still, they couldn't tell the story like they wanted to tell it. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that that is the perfect you know thing about the risk you take in running – you know, those shows so far in advance. What if so could what if this happened where you know we're screwed? So there you go. And yeah, Patanaka and Haito were both uh hanging around WCW at this time. So there's that. All right, John B. Bad over Diamond House Page in our favorite opener in five fifty five with a sunset flip from the top rope. Crowd didn't want to like this match because of who was involved, but the work was solid with a few spectacular moves by Bad. Including a spitting head scissors, spitting head scissors, and over the top rope tope that they removed virtually all crowd abuse. Good opener, two and a quarter stars. This is seems, them constantly but, working out at the power plant together. Well, and, and it's also what I was going to say here, Bix. It's like these two are married together off and on for the next two years. Mm-hmm. You know? Yep. This is a long feud. I mean, it has their there's little spells where they don't feud, but. They always end up back with each other. So, yeah, you know, and they work well together. Uh, you know, and then, like you said, it's being workout partners at the power plant definitely helps that out. So, there you go. All right, Lord Steven Regal retained the TV title by going to a 15-minute draw with Brian Pillman. Dave said it was a safe bet. The original finish was going to be Regal going over, but it was changed as Pillman had just signed his two-year contract for good money. It'd be a poor investment to beat him in the second match. The only problem is it created another draw situation involving Regal, which everyone's tired of. Aside from that, the work was very good. It started fast with Pillman using hard slaps and shots for Regal countering with his usual solid mat wrestling. It showed in the middle and picked up in the final minute when Regal came off top, but Pillman caught him with a drop kick. However, they didn't have a run near falls in the last minute. Instead, Pillman decked Sir William for the big pop at the bell, two and three-quarter stars. Uh... Yeah, they they definitely like to use that draw finish with Regal at this point in time, Bex. It, it started to get overused. Well, not just overused it. With him, the big problem was that they overdid the draws on pay-per-view. Mm-hmm. Where basically you come to expect it. Yeah. And Pillman, you know, just signed that deal, so I guess it's understandable why they wouldn't want to job him out right after he signed this deal. But, you know, sometimes you got to do what you, you got to do to you know, make the, make everything right, you know? Especially since he was still begging for some kind of at least mild repackaging because he's still just out there in the Hollywood Blondes gear. Yeah, but he's flying Brian in the Hollywood Blondes gear. That's yeah. what he is. And he was starting to get tick down the cards a little bit, which again, very funny. You know, Ric Flair as the booker and Pillman always having issues with the guy who was his mentor. Always weird. 
Next, Nasty Boys, one of Chicago Street Fighter from Max Payne, Cactus Jack and 859, and one of the wildest, sickest, and most brutal matches you'll ever see. Knobs attacked Cactus with a pool stick, but Cactus got the stick, by this time broken, and made a comeback with it. They traded brutal chair shots, and Cactus took his usual psychotic bumps in what apparently will be his last match for several months, as he's expecting to undergo surgery to reattach his ear. <laughs> Good luck with that. Knobs and Max Payne went up in the first fake concession stand brawl ever. And they set up a stand with four T-shirts and a few foam hands, which is obviously a work since it was inside the barricaded off region of the building. Knobs hit Payne with a garbage can with no garbage. Payne slammed Knobs to the concession stand table. Payne shoved the T-shirt down Knobs' throat. Jack took a header over the guardrail. Knobs threw Payne through the concession stand wall. Knobs hit Cactus four times with a table. Cactus made a comeback using a net break on the ramp on Sags. Then picked up a table like a suplex and dropped it on Sags. Nas got a plastic snow shovel, hit Cactus with a brutal shot, but Max got the shovel and hit Nobs three times, with three shots, actually, with it. Payne with the pile drive, won the guys to a table, but with about 700 pounds of combined weight, the table broke for cassette the move. Finally, Cactus took the sickest nasty plunge bump off the ramp to the concrete, so like a watermelon was being splattered on concrete. Saxon used the shovel and gave Cactus what looked to be a shot to the head, far too brutal for words, and got the pin. After the match, the Nasties KO'd Max by the shorter table over him. One of the most brutal matches of all time. Four and a half stars. That's the thing about this, this era of WCW real quick, Bo, is that we're having matches like this on these pay-per-views at this point in time, and Hulk Hogan's about to come in. Yeah. <laughs> Where this won't be happening no more. <laughs> yeah, you knew you weren't going to see him getting smacked in the face with a shovel. <laughs> well, um, he, went, he wouldn't be part of me if they let that either because they toned it all down when he comes in. Yeah. was Would that not be a fake merchandise stand, not a concession stand? Yes, fake merchandise, not fake concession. You're exactly right. Yeah. When you, when, when you watch this, you know, this is, I mean, this was setting WCW different from WWF at this time was they were going in this hardcore direction in early 94 with this feud in particular, where they're doing all kinds of wild and crazy shit. And I mean, they're doing this as ECW's not even extreme church of wrestling yet. They're still Eastern champs of wrestling. And it's just like, yeah. wow. You know, I, that was, that was the other thing about Hogan. It, it, it seemed like here they're getting ready to turn a corner and go in a, they're, they're not trying to be a WWF, replica they're they're separating herself because now you, you just look at the two matches it went right there regal and pillman which was a great wrestling match into this fight mm -hmm. and they do a mixture on this card especially probably ab above all other wcw's uh, pay-per-views blood and guts and pro wrestling because here just in a little bit Dustin and Bunkhouse Buck, Flair Steamboat. They're giving everybody something to watch and be a part of. You still got some gimmicks with Johnny B. Bad and this and that. You got girls out there. You got different. They're, they're now Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey. They have something for everybody that wants to see. And then it just comes to a screeching halt. Exactly. And Bix, you know, you look at this type of show and we still got more to go. But you look at this and you're like, this is this is AEW. 
It was hmm. an AEW show. Go on. You know? I mean, how do you? Mean? I mean, just the the way the way like Bo was saying, you have your, you know, you have your straight, you know, technical wrestling match, and you'll go directly into a brawl. Then you'll have your gimmicks. Then, then you'll you have, have your, your different match. type of brawl. Yeah, d- different type of brawls, title yeah. matches. You got big men going against each other. You got your, you know, your your uh, main event, which has got you know story and all that stuff in there too. I mean. You got personal histories. I mean, there's so much here that you look at this show in particular and you're like, wow, this looks like an AEW pay-per-view. It it really was. It was such, it was so different than everything else on the national scene at the time. Yeah. All right, Bix, what are your thoughts on what I just mentioned here? I kind of get where you're going with that. I I agree more or less, I think. Um, now, okay, I'm curious. What do you guys think? Do you prefer this match, or do you prefer the one with Cactus and Sullivan the next month? Oh, I, me personally, I prefer Slamboree. Me too. Yeah, I think I think the main reason why I prefer Slamboree is that crowd because in Philadelphia, yeah, and they and didn't they, poop on it. They got it, with yeah. It's that ECW yeah. crowd. Well, fucking is Sullivan and Cactus. Well, yeah. and also. The booking of that match and the way they pay off the whole storyline, too, is great. Max Payne at the end. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. I mean, it is. It, Heenan on that match is amazing. <laughs> he and it, Bobby Heenan has never done matches, commentary on matches like this before. You know, it's a WWF. And just him announcing these these two matches. It's, it's something to behold because he it's like he's reacting like we would react you know it, it, it's fantastic yeah. I love this stuff Fan, I mean it's tremendous to, to go back and rewatch alright so next we get stunning Steve Austin defending the United States title against the great Mutah which he would retain by disqualification and Dave, as Dave says KG, I go to America, take steroids, get big muto. <laughs> well, no, that's not what he wrote, Chris. Take steroids. Well, that's probably uh, it was a different OCR. time. That's a, no, that's probably OCR. I don't think it is. <laughs> no, because it wouldn't well, be OCR not. if it's from 1994. Basically, well, everything from 91 on, they have the original files. Okay, well, I'm, I'm trying not to... Uh, Implicate Dave. It's, anything, 20, but... it's twenty-eight years ago. I'm get. I'll give him a pass that because I don't. I also don't remember him making this joke at any other point in history either. So, yeah. It, also, just it, remember it, when Dave would just outright say someone's taking steroids. Yes, uh, nineteen. It, it, this match was it went sixteen twenty-nine. Um, these two had no choice after the previous match to take the crowd down, so they mainly did a mat work for the first ten minutes with Muda. Doing a few high spots in between. Colonel Parker tripped Muta, who didn't seem that popular coming into the ring, but did seem to get great bay face heat as the match wore on, giving Austin a few minutes of advantage. Muta didn't make a comeback until 14 minutes, but Mr. Drocky off top rope. He got Big Papa using Austin's stun gun on him. After handspring elbow, Muta used Frankenstein off top rope, but got tied up fighting with Parker. As Austin charged down, Muta backdropped Austin over top rope for the DQ. After the match, Muda did a planche on Austin and Parker. Solid match, but probably didn't meet expectations going in. Two and three-quarter stars. I'm surprised Dave did not mention what was probably the most interesting commentary moment of the night, where 
Heenan, I think, is, like, asking questions about Muda and not really treating him as a big star. And then at one point, Tony just says, he used to be our world champion. Well, Heenan won there. I know. I'm just saying, like, the way Tony says it, though, is so, like, I don't even know how to describe it. He he just seems frustrated. Because it's not Heenan the character that is... Just taking him in that direction. Yeah, read read that read that line right after Rob Trip Muda. Colonel Parker Trip Muda, who didn't seem that popular, comes to the ring, but seemed to get great face face heat. That's the match one. Oh, that baby line. face heat, baby <laughs> face heat. No wonder none of you people can speak wrestler because the person, <laughs> the, the people that reported it to you in the first place, Mister <laughs> Spoke. That- that's one that I feel like Dave didn't get wrong that often, though. That, that this feels like one where he used it the one time and then someone corrected it, maybe even. No, he maybe, used it. But he it's, did? It, okay. He used it more. There. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he used it more. Yeah. That's just, but, uh. but, but yeah, I might see also see my tweet today about fans using cell as a noun. No, I did not. That That's become popular, too. Yeah, I mean, this match, considering who's involved, I mean, it was it was good for what it was, but it definitely wasn't a classic, that's for sure. And it's uh, really yeah. the first, well, it's really the first true appearance of Lazy Muda in the U.S., too. Yes. And, and, and following a car wreck. And that's the thing, though. Well, well yeah. I, I was going to get your thoughts on this, Bo. You know, the, always what you would always hear from you know, the old timers and everything like that is when you have a match like that before this match, you got to slow it down. But yeah, in, today, in today's to. wrestling, though, you don't see that all the time. You say, well, we got to no. keep it going. Well, so where, yeah. where do you stand on that? Where, how do you feel that, that that should be done? You, I don't deal with the average wrestling fan now. So, I mean, I'm small town Appalachia, good versus bad old time wrestling. So I, I, I can't answer that as far as now, other than a reaction to people, but the mindset then was we have to bring it down to make them forget. And then we start. So that's, that's why they were given almost 17 minutes because they knew, okay, you're coming right off of chaos. Now, Let's start slow and build, and then when and, and but he just said it right there in the baby face heat line. At first, nobody really was with Muda. As the match went along, he was over. Yeah. He got they got him. So that's what you would have to do. That's what I would do. Yeah. Take it, grab a hole, then build to a high spot. Boom. Okay. Stop a little bit, slow down again, and then just keep building slowly. Yeah. And you have to look at what is following us and what's still to come. See, that's that's nowadays they do not look at what is next. I'm not talking about the people in charge laying it out. I'm talking about the wrestlers. They have to be told, okay, you need to take it to here, but not to here because next match is going to here. I'm I'm speaking on an independent level where these kids are out here allowed to just 
they're just given a time and a finish and go do this or go do whatever. No, you, you can't. I mean, somebody that's with it's got to lay out the night and lay out what needs to go where. Um, yeah. Or it just, there's no flow of the night and then you're just so freaking confused sitting there watching it and keeping that, you know, that was, uh, I watched WrestleMania this year in full for the first time since 1988. <laughs> I thought it, I thought it flowed perfectly the way it's supposed to. Well, uh, you also didn't see any of the long one night manias from the from recent years before they split the show. <laughs> I've seen I've seen part I've seen parts of them, but not no not in full. This is the first in full that I've watched since WrestleMania four. Um, but um, everything was placed where it needed to go. Now, was it? For my taste, super long, yes. My gosh, four hours each night are right at it. Um, but that's today's audience. Is is we're reporting something 28 years ago. We're reporting on that audience there. And the fact that Dave misusing the wordage, but he's telling you, hey, Muda was over by the time that this thing ended. They did their job. And just real quick before we move on, the whole card order thing also makes me think of the last AEW pay-per-view, which kind of went against the conventional wisdom of what you do to kind of give the crowd a break after the big hot, you know, blood feud match or whatever, where, so, you know, it seems like the crowd's peaking emotionally with CM Punk MJF and the dog collar match. Next, they go with Britt Baker, Thunder Rosa for the women's title, which with hindsight was probably because they weren't doing the title change until TV a week and a half later. Um, so they didn't feel like they needed a big hot crowd for it. Then they had Moxley and Danielson, which was, you know, great, but it was more of a technical match. So it didn't really get the crowd back. And then it's like you're feeling like this is a long show and it's been a loaded show. So it's tiring everyone out. Then they did the crazy tornado street fight trios match, um, you know, with Sting and Darby Allen and, you know, Andrade and Hardy and all those guys. And that being another wild match woke the crowd back up and they stayed hot for the main event. I, I thought it was interesting how that played out because it, it went against, I don't even know how much of that was even by design, but it seemed like it went against a lot of the conventional wisdom. Yeah. Alright, so next match. Stink won the WCW International title from Rick Rude in 1309. Harley Race came out before the match, so Vader could challenge the winner, which is funny since Vader's actually going to wrestle the loser. Sting whipped Race over the top rope and clothesline Rude uh, over the top rope, which was weird to see in a match open with two over the top bumps after the previous match ended with a DQ for the same bump. WCW, everybody. Typical rude match of him holding the chin lock for a long time before the babyface made the comeback, and he bumps like crazy. Ref got squashed in the corner by Rude and squashed again when he was behind Rude, and Sting delivered the Stinger Splash. Sting put on the scorpion, no referee. Race came back, but Sting beat him to the punch, which brought out Vader, and Sting was holding his own on all three, knocking Vader and Race out of the ring. The finish was awful as far as execution goes, but it didn't seem to matter to the crowd. Rude was supposed to try to Rude awaken him. Race would come in and go to hit Sting with a chair, but Sting would fall and Rude would get the blow and get pinned, which is what happened. 
The only problem was that Race couldn't find a chair and was completely out of position when Rude went for the move. So Rude had to do a 10 second freeze waiting, and Harley was still looking for a chair, let alone getting to position for the finish. We figure Aaron Neville was sitting on the extra one since Vader also had a chair, but just kneeled at the ring for no reason. <laughs> Finally, Race got the chair, and Rude and Sting went back into the same position they did the finish, with Race splitting the back of Rude's head open hard way with the blow. Several minutes after the match, they interviewed Rude, who complained about Vader, and the two started getting into it with other heels, including the embarrassed, towel-clad Jerry Sags, having to break it up in a segment that came off two staged, two stars. Uh, okay, I was able to cue up the finish. Do we even need the sound, or what do you think? No, I don't think we need the sound. But you, I think we should it. see it, yeah. All right. I remember so, time standing still here. Oh, okay. Oh, no, it's even before he starts fully applying the Rude Awakening. Let's go back a little bit more. Rude's watching. He's watching Harley. Yeah. He's, he's, <laughs> he's like, come on. And the network was working fine, and now it's not. Hold on. Of course. Yeah, Aaron Neville's there because he's in the National Anthem. Yeah. So that's why they brought that up. Yes. Noted big wrestling fan, Aaron Neville. He was just at the Clash in January. Uh, I, I was getting ready to say, here, here he is. You know, still sitting ringside after doing the anthem. He's still sitting ringside an hour and a half later. Mm-hmm. Oh, he loved wrestling. All right, let's go to well. Let's go to the run. We'll start with the run in then. All right, Rude Clip and Sting there. Yeah, might as well have the sound, I guess. Oh, what wonderful selling from Nick Patrick. Yeah, he's just laying there watching. He's very, no, he's very obviously <laughs> watching. He's laying there waiting. Posting on his hands at one point. Waiting on his cue. There's Nick Botwinkle. Rude is slowly, slowly trying to apply the Rude Awakening. It's a struggle, Picks. It's a struggle he's going through right now. And then he just hits him with a face breaker. Rude is looking for Harley Race. <laughs> Harley is looking for... Bobby Heenan in his red tuxedo. Looking like Harley Rice. With their same color jacket. Yep. Uh, Harley showed up with the chair now. Kind of. <laughs> Rude's Ru- watching. Here we go. All right, now. There we go. And of course, Sting is the pit. Bo, that's got, as a wrestler, when so- when you have a finish book like that, where you're supposed to have a run in, and you got these different steps involved, if it's not working like it's supposed to. That's got to be very, very frustrating. Yeah, because it's a very specific oh. spot, too. Yeah. Yes. And and at a time where everything's right. And and if they're not there, you're burying yourself, you're burying the referee, you're burying the business. And I had it happen right before my health issues really hit me. I was managing Murphy Constigan in uh, Bluefield for the WFS TV. And we had a little hot finish where I drew the ref and a guy was supposed to come through the curtain and push the baby face off of the corner. He never ran out because he's in the back talking over his match, not paying attention. So we have to go to plan B, which would be me reach up and pull the kid's leg. Well, I do. He doesn't fall down because that's not what he was told. He didn't know how to go with it. It's one of them situations where you just want to run your head through the wall. And especially being on a worldwide stage here on a pay-per-view, 
I can only imagine how much cussing Rick Rude was doing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh. And Harley. Because now the heat's on Harley, you know. Yeah. I hope Rude didn't call him an old man. No, I don't think that was going to happen. <laughs> I know it's Rick Rude, but that's Harley Race, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So we had that match. Followed that up with Buckhouse Buck. Pitting Dustin Rhodes in fourteen seventeen, at the end of a foreign object, an excellent bloodbath. Dustin sprinted on the aisle and flew over the top rope with a clothesline over the match. Dustin missed a crossbody and went to the floor, giving Uncle Buck the advantage, breaking a stick on Dustin's back, hitting him in the head with the stick. Dustin did that hereditary juice job and was covered in blood. Although the cameras were doing everything they could to avoid showing it, since favorite distributors and cable companies don't want juice on these shows. Rose took a spin bump off a clothesline on the ramp. Rose threw powder in Buck's eyes. Buck came back using his belt and suddenly whipped Rose with it, including a belt buckle to the forehead. And Dustin was bleeding heavily. Dustin then used the belt and whipped and hit Buck with it with Buck juicing. Dustin removed his cowboy boot and did a fist drop on Buck's head using the heel of the boot and went back to whipping him. Dustin did the bulldog instead of going for the pin, went after Parker. Dustin started whipping Parker with the belt and allowing Buck the schoolboy from behind for a near fall. Parker then gave Buck an object, which he used for the pin. But halfway into the match, the announcers, when bumping on a glove, both seemed to think it was a loaded glove, and they were going to the finish. But instead, Free Will gave away the finish that was still to come. Instead of bringing these two back in a podcast match on the next pay-per-view, the heel had to go over, so this was the only logical finish. Four stars. This is a hell of a damn match. <laughs> Double juice, everything. And, Mix, isn't it funny that Dave's talking about Dustin and Buck here and the potential problems with juice with Avery distributors, considering what's going to happen less than a year later. <laughs> As part of a continuation of the Dustin Colonel Parker program, yes. And, yeah, basically, yes. And also, Dave's wrong. This is the bunkhouse match. The next month is the bull rope match. Yeah, that's what I say. What, what the hell is Dave talking about? This, this is, is the bunkhouse bunk match. <laughs> yes. Yes. All right. Well, I'm going to you. Jimmy Golden, Bunkhouse Buck. I mean, this revitalized his career. I mean, Jimmy Golden was just, you know, basically working independence, you know, in, in, in East Tennessee and wherever. And he gets this gimmick and he's a national television star. Who would have thought that would have happened? Um, he was working for me real regular. Um, yeah. And him and his wife had a, a business. Um, he had worked for Cornette. They had finished up, uh, what, maybe a year earlier for Jimmy? Yeah, in 93. With Smoky Mountain, right after the deal with Bobby and Arn and all that, because Robert gets the deal to go. They have nothing for Jimmy. So Jimmy's working wherever he can. Um, we're in Morristown one night, and he says, Rob called, and I'm going to Atlanta. Don't tell anybody. And I said, man, great. I said, you know, he said, I'm going to be a cowboy. <laughs> so I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, I'm trying, to, uh, I'm trying to picture, you know, Jimmy as Wendell Cooley. You know, I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so then he, he, I guess he had just like that day or day before he got the first call, then. Like I see him a few days later and then he's telling me more about it. 
what it's going to be. And uh, I'm like, man. And I thought for sure everybody was going to know it's Jimmy Golden. They didn't. I mean, he really, he did. He recreated himself. Uh, I mean, it was, took some time before a lot of long time fans knew who it was. And he, he did great with it. Um, this match right here has a special place for me because I sold out the King Sports Civic Auditorium against Jimmy Golden off of this match from Spring Stampede 94 on in July of 2003, <laughs> which you will be able to watch on the Southern States Wrestling Network as we're going through 2003 right now. There you go. Jimmy's booking with me, and we do the whole program, and we where I had turned heel at Christmas, and we're going to take it all the way to July or beyond. So I knock the family and everybody. I've talked about that on this. You know, Robert comes back, and, and I beat Robert. And so then we get to the loser leave town match. Golden wants the loser leave. And he starts throwing out challenges for stipulations. And he, he wants a chain match. And I do an interview and I say, I'm not very good at chain matches. I've had this many and I've lost this many. I'm, there's too much at stake. Then he makes a challenge for this. Nope. Cage match. Lost to the Batten Twins. I'm not doing it. Then we get to where Jimmy challenges me to a bunkhouse match. And I say, I, I accept because I went and looked in the record books and I cannot find where Jimmy Golden has ever been in a bunkhouse match. Not one time. And my TV host, Alan Austin, big radio guy here says, Jimmy Golden's never been in a bunkhouse match, but you forgot something. Bunkhouse Buck has. Take a look. And we showed highlights of this on the TV and we sold out the Civic Auditorium. And him beating me and me leaving town. So thank you, Dustin, for doing a great job of getting that over. And he, everything that you see him do to Dustin Rhodes in this, he did to me, the belt buckle, the everything. And he brought to the ring without me knowing it was coming, the cowbell and bull rope that they used in the match on the next pay-per-view. And I got beat in the face and head with that thing. So... It, but Jimmy did great. I, I, you know, him and Robert, Robert even reinvented himself. I mean, yes, he's still Robert Fuller as Colonel Parker. He, he, he changes the accent a little bit and puts the white suit on. But I mean, hey, they did they did great. And what they get a two year run there. Well, Jimmy got two years. Robert got Robert. four. Yeah. Because so. he, he leaves in 97 and goes in 93. Yeah, Robert had a four-year run. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, great, and I was so happy for both of them because all they did for the business and their family did, and it was kind of like, you know, business had kind of passed them by, you thought, maybe. Well, they, they looked no, like a Smoky Mountain, like they were – I mean, they still were working great and everything, but they kind of looked like it was passing them by. Yeah. And oh, then no. they reinvent yourself and make a lot of money. That's what you got to do when you sometimes when you got when you get to that point in time in your career, 
reinvent yourself and make money. Yep. And they did it. And God bless him. And Buck, at this point in time, he still looks more like Jimmy Golden than he would as the time went on. Because at this point in time, from the, he's, he's still he's wrestling wearing uh, he's not wearing the white shirt with the suspenders. He's wearing like more darker colors. Well, so doesn't his the hair, his hair yeah. in this one right yeah. away too. Yeah, his hair isn't greased back. He looks he looks more like yeah. Jimmy Golden here. But yeah, as time went on, yeah, he definitely changed. He, he adapted. They gave him a they gave him an allowance to buy the bunkhouse buck outfit. <laughs> I'm sure that was a lot of money. <laughs> it, 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 they, no, they did. They they give him quite a bit of money to buy the bunkhouse buck outfit. He went to the Green Acres Flea Market on Alcoa Highway, <laughs> and they told they, they they told him what they wanted him. They want we want you to look like a cowboy that ranch hand hat, <clears throat> um, duster jeans, cowboy boot. He bought the whole thing at the flea market for like twenty five dollars, just walking around to different booths buying stuff. Jimmy Golden is bunkhouse buck has a cowboy hat in hand at all times. He never puts it on his head <laughs> because he bought it at this horrible flea market in Knoxville. And he's like, I don't know where that thing's been. I ain't about to put it on my head. <laughs> so he just carries it with him. Because they told him he had to have a cowboy hat. <laughs> I'm going to be a cowboy. So, and he still has the outfit, and he still wears it when he does the conventions and the signings and stuff. He did it when he did a shoot interview with Feinstein. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh man, God love him. You, you do you know how he made his beard dark? Just for men? No, because here here's what he would. After he worked, he would wash it out so nobody knew it was him. <laughs> That's dedication. That, I guess that was one of the reasons that he kept changing the look until he got to where people didn't recognize that it was him. He was taking some kind of something they make cake or make use on cake to decorate it, something like that, and he would keep stubble. He, would, he never really had a beard. He just had the stubble. And he would take that cake stuff and rub it in there to where it would stay. And it looked like a full beard. And then when he came out of the ring, he would wash it out and comb his hair back and walk around. Nobody knew he was Bunkhouse Buck. <laughs> and he was still working independent shows on the weeks that he wasn't booked. <laughs> yeah. He was very active. I love it. <laughs> But yeah, folks, go go watch all that stuff. This is this whole Dustin Parker feud. It's fantastic. All right, Vader pinned the boss <clears throat> with Moonsault in 917. Vader came into the match moving slowly like he was hurting. But as the match won, he took all kinds of crazy bumps and delivered his usual stiff shots back. Vader and Cactus Jack, if anything, are too committed to always delivering a memorable match of preview, which is why both always come out of these matches banged up. At one point, Vader ran across the ramp and dove over the top, but Boss got his knees up to break the splash. And also probably did wonders for his own bad knees, legit. At one point, Vader took a guardrail shot and went over and wiped it out the first row. 
boss dropped him over the guardrail. Somewhere in here, Vader's eye and possibly mouth was busted open. And the cameras are doing everything to show the blood. Vader backdropped the boss over the top, but no DQ was called. Vader came back with a brutal-looking punches and a shotgun lariat. Boss came back and suplexed Vader and landed on his shoulder. Vader saw Boss come over the top rope, and Vader caught him and turned into a power slam. Then after a splash for near fall, he got the pin with a moonsault. After the match, Boss attacked the literally destroyed race with a nightstick. And with nightstick shots. In the post interview, Nick Botwinkle told the boss in other matches, Street Fight and Bunkhouse stipulations allowed gimmicks. But this match was not a gimmick match. He was taking a nightstick and handcuffs and told him he could no longer wrestle as the boss. Poor Nick is feeling put in a position to make rulings that make no sense. Who can forget? Well, okay, everyone can forget. The memorable ruling threatened to suspend Jimmy Garvin, who didn't work for the company. <laughs> as well as the name have to do with anything. <laughs> Well, of course, it has to do with everything. It says Titan has been sending nasty, threatening legal letters about the name, uniform, nice ticket, handcuff gimmick. If there was ever a case that they should win, this would seem to be it since they created the entire gimmick and trademarked it. And their competitor is using it. Given all of that, one, that's why WCW used in the first place. But that's another story. So, Rachel will have a new gimmick. Names bear the route are the Vigilante, the Guardian Angel, and Buford Justice. Three and a half stars. Vix, you wanted to play the, the finish here, so let's uh, go ahead and watch this. <laughs> well, the promo more than the finish. The end. Okay. The, the Buford Justice name has to be from Robert Fuller or Kevin Sullivan. <laughs> <laughs> Although, actually, should we show the beat? We should, should, we should probably watch the beat down to see if it's sufficiently brutal enough for the angle to come across, right? I guess. All right, so we are. Uh, let me go back a little more. Hold on, that's not working the way I meant for it to. My hand is being a little shaky. Okay, a little more. Okay, okay, so here's the pin on the moonsault. Yeah, Vader's eye fu is fucked up. Yeah. Yep, Boss Man's beating shit out of Harley, isn't he? <laughs> I mean, it's. <sighs> it's after the match, too. That's the thing. So that's the explanation. And he's, and he's using a deadly weapon. Well, exactly. So, I know it's a nightstick, so there's not a lot you can do with a working shot with it, but it still doesn't look like that much. He's just kind of... he He's basically doing a double sledge holding the nightstick. Like, lightly build, doing a double sledge run, to his rigs. Yeah, well. It's, and it's not an active wrestler. It's a manager who happens to be Holly Ray's. Okay, so let, let's just skip to the promo, I guess, since that does have a chapter mark. All right. Dude, there's All something right. going on. All right, there it is. All right, everybody, I'm back here in the press room with the boss man and with the WCW Commissioner Nick Bachter. Jesse's mic on. Tough matches tonight where the contestants stipulated to the rules before they got into the ring. This was not the scenario tonight, and I realize how you feel, and I, and I sympathize with you. The match was over. But I'm going to tell you right now. You represent a lot of good people, and they do it in a certain way. This is not one of them, and I'm taking this away from you right now. Nice. I'm taking the handcuffs away from you, okay? Because I am saying one more thing to you. As far as I'm concerned, personally, you're no longer the boss. Now, I want to say that I sympathize with you, and I know how you feel, but there, there's no two ways. You can't just take this. We know what this has done, and you did the wrong thing. It's not a popular decision on my part, but that's the way it's going to be. Well, there you got it, ladies and gentlemen. Nick Bockwinkle taking away the handcuffs 
taking away the wand, the baton, and literally stripping the name boss from the boss. Let's go to Michael Buffer and the main event. Man, is he big, though. You uh, you couldn't hear the, because uh, his mic wasn't on, but I think Jesse called him the boss man when he interview first started. <laughs> that's was, why. Oh, wait, that's I mean, that's what we got to do. They had to do that, you know. Oh, wait, let's see. Oh, wait, that's the wrong thing I just clicked on. Hold on. Uh, okay, yeah, because the chapter listing jumped back. All right, let's see. Dude, there's right. something going on. All right, there it is. The boss yep. man, yes. That, there you go. That's why. You think that's... A, no, but they... Oh, no, but it's stuff not a like that is though. why. Oh, okay. I know, but stuff like that is why those ha- that thing happening. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's... You know, remember we talked about with, with Scott Hall and Kevin Nash, intellectual property, you know, two years later. I mean, this is a clear and blatant use of WS intellectual yeah. property right here. Oh, yeah. I mean, if there no was ever about a case. It. I forget, I mean, did they right actually here, sue here's them? It. No. Did they were they send too a letter? With their other, uh, I don't know, but this, they're too busy with their other legal issues at this time. That, that That's what I always figured. They just, it was under, somebody missed it because they're so worried about the trial that's coming up that... Because I would see it and go, how has he still got that gimmick? How have they not changed his name or look yet? He's the same guy, just with different colors. That's the thing. Different color shirt, not even a different color pants. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They just changed his shirt from blue to black and took the Georgia patch off of it and and shortened his name to three letters. (laughs) It's pretty crazy. But um, you know they could have they could have figured something else better for him than the Guardian Angel, but it is what it is. What yeah. Can you do? yeah. Although it's weird that they did it with Paul Elon gone from the company. <clears throat> yeah. Um. <laughs> that's it, though. This they had a hell of a match. Oh God. Yeah. It, it this has become a really underrated feud, but this I mean you could say even this and this might even be kind of your first modern hostile match. In a way. Definitely early, yes. Hoss fight style, yeah. And then we got the main event. Ric Flair was awarded decision a clumsy and nonsensical post-match to go into a double pin with Ricky Steamboat in 32-21. No matter how much hard training, the reality is an athlete can't be good as good at 45 as he was at 40 or 41 as he was at 36. And no matter how much comedy and gimmicks are involved in pro wrestling, Surf performers are also excellent athletes who rely heavily on their athletic ability once the bell rings. And a few in this country more than these two. No, this wasn't as good as 1989. It was unrealistic to expect it to be. They were the two best wrestlers in the world at that time, both at the peak of their games with complementing styles against one another, doing what was at the time state-of-the-art. Now they're just two great wrestlers having an excellent match. And considering the quality of this show, that somebody voted it as the best match on the show says just how good it really was. Although they weren't doing move after move to put their careers at serious risk, they had excellent ring psychology, and both are still in tremendous condition. Unfortunately, the evolution of this business is to more and more stuntmen spots, splash through tables, topes, etc., and less psychology and malware, which is the difference between a 1989 state art match of the year and a 1994 match of the year, which this wasn't. There are great arguments on why this is a bad evolution, and it can be. 
more important being the physical damage to the bodies involved if the guys cross the line, as some do. But you can't put the genie back in the bottle when crazy men perform for the moment or hunger to reach the top. As sick as it is, what Katniss Jack and the others <clears throat> following his footsteps are, and making bigger footsteps than to break the tables due to themselves, it is raw and compelling, and evolution rarely goes backwards. This, <clears throat> this in many ways, is uncivilized business. It gets worse, and business and decli- business declines, and people are desperate for ways to revive it. Flair and Steamboat are civilized. Flair looked lighter in the ring there before, almost bordering on looking overtrained, since he and Steamboat had their private competition on which of the two would be in better shape for the match. This was a slow building match that got better as it lasted. But unfortunately, because of the finish, left one flat as it ended. They did basically everything you'd expect, and it turned into a classic, with Steamboat on offense most of the way, and Flair taking big bumps on the Nuzmini, or as crazy as they would have been years ago. But he took a bump off the top rope and two, two superplexes and two upside-down flips to the turnbuckle. After numerous near falls, Steamboat got flared a double chicken wing, which he really shouldn't have highlighted on television, winning squash matches with him in the weeks leading up to the show because they were relying on five-year memories to get that finish over, which is dangerous since most wrestling fans don't last that long. But it fell backwards and both had their shoulders pinned. It was announced that Flair was awarded a decision by Botwinkle since Steamboat failed to beat him, and on a tie, the decision always goes to the champion. But the tune on television Saturday because the decision may be reversed. It was actually a simple double pin finish, which is traditional title match draw finish in Lucha Libre, since those matches have no time limit. Apparently, this was done to set up a t- TV rematch to a big rating, perhaps at the June Clash. Dave thinks it's bad policy to ask fans to spend twenty four ninety five for a preview show and then tell them that to wait a week to find out who won the main event. But at least I didn't tell them to call the 900 line to find out. Yeah, to give a double pinfall finish with the challenger in command and executing the hold to lead to a rematch is a good finish. To provide the issues eventually resolved, this is soap opera. If there's no rematch, this was a weak finish. And most had a ladder feeling after the match. After all, this still is with WCW with tremendous track record to live down. Four and a quarter stars. All right, let's play the finish here and then we'll talk about everything going on champion right now the referee goes outside the referee goes here he comes one two hey so late the referee slipped he went outside but no the match keeps going and flair's got the steamboat has the hold that's how he won the title that's how Chicago. No, it's Five not. years ago, he beat him at that submission hole. Oh, my That's no. more true. The double chicken wing. It's got him down. One, two, three. We got a new champion. Ricky Steamboat is the new heavyweight champion of the world. Oh, All right. my goodness. Steamboat, Steamboat's hands in the air. Wait a minute, maybe somebody had their foot on the ropes. No, not at all. Where's Bachwinkle going? Nick Bachwinkle, commissioner's going in the ring. Both men's shoulders were flat in the three times. I had to count both men out. They were both down. Both men were down. Neither man really had control. Both men's shoulders were down. Did you hear that? Both men's shoulders were down.
change the title, we heard Nick Patrick say that both men had their shoulders down. You went in there. What did you tell Nick exactly? Two things. Tradition dictates that if a match would be a draw, that naturally it would go to the champion. But this was not a time limit situation. The other situation is this. Blair was the champion, and it was the job of Steamboat to take and be one sixteenth or one thirty-second of an inch ahead of him. He was not. He did not prove it. So he, at this moment, until I can take this to the board, the championship will be retained by Flair. So you're... A great decision. So so you've got to talk to the board yet, right? Well, I mean, this is the decision I've made tonight. The match is over, and so be it for this moment. But so right now, Flair is the champion, and and I'll take this to the board. All right, he will take it to the board, so the controversy continues. Hopefully we'll have uh, some results of your talk with the board. A fantastic effort by two great athletes. On WCW Saturday Night, fans, make sure you join us next Saturday night. He'll be talking to the board. What a what? Yes, go ahead. And I think, Nick, you did the only fair thing and just thing. How about that? Well, it's unusual to get compliments from Sir Robert. All right. So, <laughs> Ric Flair is still the world heavyweight champion. Love Commissioner it. Nick Bockwinkle will... Okay. Um, this finish is actually even worse than I remember. Because... Yeah. Buffer's w- announced him as the winner. Well, not Flair's even that. Flair's winner tonight. <sighs> I did not remember Randy Anderson specifically saying on mic that neither wrestler had control, and that's the main reason that it's a draw. That if that if one of them was in control with both guys' shoulders down, it would have been a pinfall with one of them winning. But since none of them had control, it's a draw, but Steamboat had control. It's literally a point of the promos building up the title being held up in the rematch that Steamboat repeatedly points out that he was in control. And I hate to say it because they had a hell of a match and stuff, but, you know, with Dave alluding to, this was not a, this version of the double pin was not a common finish in the U.S. at all at this point. If it happened, it was the... You do the back suplex, one you know, one guy gets the shoulder up kind of thing, and the guy who was taking the suplex gets the pin thing. This, I think, ends up being very destructive because this finished after this point, bad double pins become so much more common in American wrestling. Yes. Way too common. Like it was not a constant thing before this point. And I, I mean, granted. It's not even the worst double pin finish that for a title change that WCW's done in the last year. That's Rude and Dustin, where both guys had their shoulders up. Yeah. So somehow we're supposed to think that neither referee saw that the that neither guy was actually pinned, but like, what well, what was the point of this? Was the point here that they wanted to have a? I guess because TBS is still technically TBS locally, that they wanted a big match for May sweeps, so. They yeah. shot this. It has to be right. Yeah, the, so. yeah. But the thing is, I mean, I think that. Go ahead, Bo. The point because right before he takes him back, did they, the flare not go to his knees? Uh, oh, you mean did Steamboat like cut? rest him down? Like kind yeah. of both of them? Go, did, did they both go down to their knees first, or did he kind of yeah. halfway suplex him? Is what you're asking? He went to the knees and then he suplexed him. So to speak, yes. 
That sounds so great. He, we'll see if I can... he lost the whole, is what they're, they're they, but they didn't do a good job of getting that over. It was like, okay, he had him, but then he lost him, and then he went to something else. But it still doesn't make sense even with that. Okay, shoots him off, go behind, O'Connor roll, Patrick gets kind of bumped, but not really. Steamboat gets the visual fall, which again, also weird that he gets this visual fall too, and they don't really mention it. So, chop, jump. Okay, so counters the back suplex, double arm chicken wing. He's got the elevated double chicken wing. Flair shaking his head no. Um, so where do we go? Not they there, didn't really. Then but back. he doesn't lose the he doesn't lose the double chicken wing though. No, but that's the point they're trying to make is well he dropped him. So the so point he lost is, control. So, so is the idea that basically if he had suplexed him, even if both guys' shoulders were down, Steamboat would have won. Is what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. Is that a rule? If he that went I didn't straight back and not. No, they're just trying to give you that he didn't. Ha he lost control of him when they went to their knees. Okay. They really overthought this finish, though, too. Yeah, they did. But again, and, double, and I, double pins a draw, and then Buffer's announcer Flair is the winner. Yeah, I'm curious what so, the last double pin draw, as opposed to a double pin, you know, shoulder up win, in a national or promotion or a territory had been or te you know televised at least territory match before this point because like i said like bo like i mean you can back me up on this i think the doing a double pin draw was not common in america before this no no not at all all right yeah hell of a match not i mean what you expect is flare steamboat so. the, rem the rematch on tv is even better though the tv yeah, match is even is. better yes I, I agree with Dave on the, I don't like they paid money but didn't get a finish. So watch TV to find out what, it should have just held the belt up right there on the pay-per-view. Yeah. Bockwinkle should have just took the belt, made an announcement. I don't know. We've got to go back and watch it and have a meeting with the board. Then we'll make a decision. Yeah. I. That, that, I that would have been better, I think. And I don't, I don't agree with Dave, where he just keeps trying to point out that hey, they're old or they're older. This match is not as good as what it was five years ago. That match was great. The TV match, like we just said, was even better. Oh yeah, nobody's thinking about their age. Here's two of the majority of this company's fan base's favorite from childhood. Yeah. And they're exactly. still performing at a high level and still having great matches. Well, not just each other, but everybody else. And he said that fan base of five years, they don't remember. Everybody remembers the the chicken, the double chicken wing from New Orleans that was watching wrestling. Because WCW mm -hmm. fans stuck around all the way till the end. Yeah. Oh, it's when WCW went away that they went away. Yep. And also, the, I get the confusion because they're in Chicago, but the anniversary of New Orleans is closer to the show. Much closer. It's five yeah. years ago that month. You know, it's like five years in a week or so. So that's a little weird. That they, let's put it that way. I mean, he beat him to retain the title 
with the double chicken wing, but, well, sort of. Well, they did the double pin-ish thing in the third fall of the New Orleans match, too. Kind of. And um, I, 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 think, I think that this match has a lot to do with the house that they drew. The legacy of the, how, title, of the original title. The, the five years before and how great that match was. I mean, I said this on here before, I think. Uh, I think Chicago's the best of the three big 89 matches. Yeah. It's the most I, I, heated. I it's faster paced. It's um, not... I'm partial to New Orleans. I, I, I like I mean, New, New Orleans, Orleans from amazing, the time. But... Yeah. I'm partial to New Orleans. But it's the, the best. emotion it, 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 it's it, at a wrestling standpoint, New Orleans is as a the energy and the excitement in the pop. Yeah. Chicago. Absolutely. Now, if they would have if they would have promoted New Orleans, <laughs> uh, you probably could have got much more out of the emotion in the people. Yeah. But we, well, or if we know even, that story. Or even if they had run Lake Run Arena or something, too. It would have been yeah. better. You know, which, yeah. Wait, I forget, was it the... When we did the George Scott show, was it... Was it Where was it that they had the take on the tickets that they had the wrong venue listed? Was it Lake Run Arena or was it Municipal Auditorium? I think it was Municipal Auditorium, right? Something like that. Not a good finish, but, you know, great match. They have an even better one on TV in a few weeks. But just clumsy. And not also not really... Not one of the best looks for Bachwinkle is one of his first major decisions as commissioner, too. No. Not at all. And he was a great choice for that role. Basically. But he looks so ineffectual yeah. after these few angles here. Go ahead. Especially after taking away boss man stick cuffs and name. <laughs> well, also, yeah. yeah, he he just did this very authoritative thing, and then now he's like, "Well, uh, gotta talk to the board." Yeah. All right. So the show ended up uh, doing an estimated one hundred twenty-two thousand buys, point five three buy rate, which would be a one point three seven million dollar gross. The buy rate was either even or with or down slightly from the previous two pay-per-view shows. So, there's that. Vader suffered a broken wrist to spring stampede when Boss suplexed him off the middle of the rope into his shoulder, which was like he'd break his collarbone from the bump, but the collarbone was okay. He didn't miss any dates. Not surprising, considering who we're talking about. Tough bastard. Catnish Jack, Torch says, it's taking three months off. To have reconstructed surgery on his detached ear. His last match for the layoff was Sunday. No, it was not. <laughs> well, okay. I'd have to pull up the footage or ask Mick or something to remind myself what the exact timeline is. Does he have the little rebuilt ear stump already at this point? Or is he just covering it all with his hair and you can't see? He's covering it all with his hair. Okay, so what this is probably and he doesn't need a long layoff from it, is that they built up what they built up. Yeah. Which I don't even know if reattaching it was ever the plan, but it's a mix. You got to think Dave probably talked to him. Well, I mean, one of Dave's faults is that sometimes he won't call people who he knows he can call for whatever reason. So This is the torch. Oh, sorry. You're right. I see that. Uh, Well, same goes for Wade, though. I mean, not, not Wade's more likely to actually reach out. Wade 
less likely to just kind of brain fart and not call them. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's up with that. I'm assume I'm assuming it's that he has not had any reconstructive procedure yet. But which, by the way, we should know. Like, you know, he talked about it in the torch talk. I think he does later in the year. All things considered, Mick was lucky. Yeah. He didn't have lasting violence issues. He didn't have any lasting hearing issues. You know, they built it up enough that, you know, there was something there. He didn't have a big hole in the side of his head. I mean, functionally, he didn't really have many issues other than he couldn't wear glasses. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. There were numerous banners and signs regarding Hogan in Chicago, most of which were negative. What a surprise, huh? Dusty Rhodes wasn't even at the building for Spring Stampede, so his front office power appears to be nil. Rhodes this past week did a guest shot on the TV show Burke's Law, including a fight scene where Marcus Bagwell and Brian Pillman put him over. Rhodes apparently did so good on the show that they want to bring him back. You mean he did so good in Hollywood? <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember that show. What was that show? You never seen Dusty on Burke's Law? No, I don't even remember what Burke's Law was. Burke's Law. Oh, God, who was on that show? Um, oh, we have on YouTube now. Since it the was last Steve time. Lawrence. Steve Lawrence is on that show. Um, you know, it was a show in the 60s, and it was brought back in the 90s. Oh, and it had, what's his name on there, too? It had uh, Gene Barry. Gene Barry was was back as Chief Famous Burke. Dom DeLuise was on there, Bo, as a regular. Oh. Um, and then they had a lot of people doing ca- uh, cameos, including before Friends. Jennifer Aniston was on there. Wow, all kind of people were on that show in cameo roles. Wow. So, all right, well, let's, I guess Bix wants to watch it, so I don't let's watch it. I don't want to watch the whole eight minutes, but let's see what we got here. Look what the cat dragged in. Hey, it's Mark DiCarlo. Also, this appears to be... Actually, maybe I should take my filter off. This appears to be recorded off of... I think CBS Action is like a European satellite channel, isn't it? I never heard of it. Yeah. The big guy. I get it on the fire stick. Okay. And go fetch Antoinette's sweater. Got a poodle. Don't get me started, Keeps. I come in peace. Yeah, just like last year when your body slammed me after the preliminary. You know, you broke three of my ribs. Ancient history. Mm-hmm. Things are different now. That's right. This year I'm the judge. Look, Tom, I'm thinking of retiring Antoinette to breed next year. And it'd be nice if she went out a winner. Think again. You might as well go home now because you and your dog are exactly the same. Chief Burke, homicide. We called you earlier. So I could do the work in. You see, my schedule's a little tight. That's my girls. You know Skippy? Yeah, sure. How you doing? We got a few questions. Like what? The dog leash that killed Tom Keats. We found a hair on it from Antoinette, your dog. Any idea how it got there? The leash was probably hers. Later that day, I realized it was missing. Can anyone corroborate that? Besides Antoinette, 
Yeah, I told a few people. How'd your dog leash wind up around Tom Keats' neck? The leash was in Antoinette's unlocked travel kit. Anybody could have got to it. Hey, if all you guys has got is a dog hair on a dog leash from a dog show, remind me not to vote for the next tax increase for cop salaries. Well, here's also what's interesting about this. Bagwell's in the Stars and Stripes gear before there's a Stars and Stripes. Yeah. If this is being taped right about this point. Also, yeah, CBS Action is a British channel. I mean, it changed its name and now it's Zone Thriller. Um, oh, no, oh no, it replaced Zone Thriller. What is it now? It is... Now it's CBS Justice. Uh, British free day or television channel specializing in action, film, drama, murder, mystery programs. Launched in the UK and Ireland November 09 and changed its name in November 2019. Wow, there must be a lot of weird shows that we don't realize are airing internationally. Anyway. We understand you and Tom Keats had an argument the morning he was killed. You here for a confession? I'll give you one. I hated Tom Keats. He was a liar and a cheat. Used every dirty dog show trick in the book. Spike dogs drinking water. Or an extra dog in heat. Last year. Last year, he put hairspray on Antoinette. He got her disqualified. And you killed him? No, I didn't kill him. Just because I do what I do for a living, everybody thinks I'm a monster. Really, I'm a pussycat. Also, I like <laughs> Philman knows what he's doing. He, he doesn't even take a bump. Bagwell takes a bump for that clothesline. Um, okay, I'm I'm curious to watch this more. Obviously, we won't now. But also, no, notice that actor Dusty is mostly using his natural Virgil voice. Yeah, he's great. He does a great job there, considering. You know, considering he's done so little like traditional TV or movie acting. Yeah, I mean he's done acting before, of course, but it's, it's just odd that he never did more than what he did. It's also funny that he's basically playing Dusty Rhodes, but isn't doing the Dusty voice. Yeah, <laughs> but anyway, Burke's Law. Wow, I ain't thought about that in a while. So there you go. Um, speaking of recurring roles, the Space Sting's character Hammerhead, the one up as a face and friends with Hulk Hogan's character. Which probably coincide with tag team matches with the two provider Hogan's deals worked out. Um, Hammerhead has more than one episode, but does not turn babyface. No. WCW Magazine's folding due to decreasing sales. Subs have fallen below 3,000. I'd be curious to know the full circulation. Um, okay, Chris, were you getting the magazine when it folded? I, I never subscribed. Okay, I subscribed for most of the run. At first, I got it on newsstands. Um, it was so abrupt that there was no farewell to the point that I forget what they called the last page, whatever action shot they showed parting shot, I think was a different London magazine, but they literally, they had to put to fit in any notice that the magazine was folding. They just put it, they just took out the planned last page and put in a farewell notice, but didn't even change the table of contents or anything. Which, well, at least no one lost any jobs or anything because it was just the PWI crew, but... Yeah. We're still sad to see it go. Um, 
had become particularly strange in its last year or so. Well, two reasons. One, one was that it uh, clearly due to declining sales, despite being an official promotions magazine, it had gone to PWI style, mostly black and white pulp with some color instead of being full color. The other was that the Disney tapings made an absolute mess of the magazine. Because yeah. so much happened that wasn't aired. Like, Sherry, by the time Sherry is managing Flair on TV, you you know, when the actual magazine comes out, or actually, no, maybe it's earlier, but, like, there's stuff in the magazine about Sherry managing the Sullivans, who at that point they call Kevin and Divad, as opposed to Evad. Um, the one that sticks out to me the most, and we've mentioned this once or twice before talking about the Disney tapings, there's got to be stuff on those Disney tapings that we have no idea happened. Because after the first set, it's always like scattershot reports of results from whatever fans showed up for a taping cycle or whatever. Whereas for the first set of tapings, Dave clearly had access to the formats. And... Because of that, we have situations like there is an issue. I've, I've nagged a WCW Worldwide on Twitter to find it. He has not. There is an issue where there is a picture of Johnny B. Bad wearing the mask he wore after the angle with Max Payne where he's burnt by shooting the bad blaster off in his face. He is holding the TV title above his head. I vividly remember getting this issue and reading this. I see the picture at first. I think it's some, you know, dusty finish, not, you know, fake title change that got reversed from one of the syndicated shows I don't I either don't get or don't watch. Then I read the caption, which say, which explicitly says that it's him winning the TV title a year before he won the TV title. <laughs> and it's the, the thing is, though, it's WCW magazine run by the after magazine guys. I'm sorry, they are not getting that wrong. That is clearly from a title change they shot that never aired. Well, should have surprised you. No, not really. Yeah, exactly. So, <clears throat> yeah, I mean that was it was a mess doing those Disney tapings. Absolutely. All right, uh, house show schedule for April nineteenth in Nashville is canceled, which makes three house shows in a row canceled, and no house shows this entire week and not until April twenty seventh. So that aspect of the business has as many problems as ever. You know Zane Breslov's there. There you go. On the WCW syndicated show there Sunday, day of the show in Chicago, they kept plugging the house show as being tomorrow night. WC everybody. Now, WCW <laughs> Saturday night on April 16th, we had Terry Taylor terrorizing go to a Tyler Madraw in the opener. After the match, Taylor asked for five more minutes, but Terry didn't re the ring until Taylor's bat was turned. This is, you know, Terry Taylor grooming Paul Levesque. And they had a lot of TV matches in this time period. During the match, Tony Schiavone and Bobby Heenan speculated on Hulk Hogan being in the front row of Spring Stampede. Throughout the show, Gene Oakland hosted Spring Stampede updates with each segment recap in one match. WCW had done her in line plug Talk to Gene tonight, which deceptive as Oakland's pre recorded. Listen to Gene would be more accurate and ethical. Come on, boy. Ron Simmons and Harlem Heat beat Barker Bagwell, Tuco Scorpio, and Ice Train. In the two minute event, when Cole pinned train after Simmons tripped train as train was pressing Cole. Then we had pretty wonderful Patriots, the Sullivan's, and Buckhouse Butt won squash matches throughout the show. Analysis from Wade 
Not enough was done to make Taylor and Rising seem like a mean, meaningful match. It does make sense to have Taylor feud with Rising, as WWE is going to use Taylor as a veteran to teach younger wrestlers. It's unfortunate, since Taylor deserves one more chance at a push. She's one of the better interviewers, the top three workers in the company, Bix. Gee, I wonder uh, who's talking to Paul Taylor here. The speculation throughout the program <laughs> on Hogan throughout the show, given that there were no plans for Hogan to actually be there, was lame. For final push for a big pay-per-view, it lacked a sense of feuds climaxing. Most interviews were canned, done in studio, and played during an update. There's no sense of immediacy or boiling emotions, which is Trey more of a good final hard sell. And this is the era of the Wade Keller detailed <sighs> scoring breakdown for the show. Yeah, he gave uh, a 53 out of 100 overall. Match quality was an 8 out of 20. Achieved purpose was a 9 out of 20. Angles were 4 out of 10. Interviews 4 out of 10. Announcing 7 out of 10. Production values 8 out of 10. Pacing continuity 5 out of 10. Instead of tuning next week, 8 out of 10. And they did a 2.2 rating. Well, main event the day of Spring Stampede drew 1.7. A shocking number, since you think Reigns will be up for the day of the show. And Pro on Saturday morning did a 1.5. So, there you go. Ratings, interesting. Main event doing a lower number there. And uh, Dave notes here to close, there's a good chance there'll be a tour of South Korea in June. So, obviously, this idea was in somebody's mind a year earlier before it happened. We're assuming that Dave doesn't know the difference between North and South Korea. Well, it's possible, but maybe they were thinking of running South Korea. Well, here's the thing, though. The North Korea show is not WCW. It's a New Japan show that... I know, but still. Which, by the it way... It sounds like, like somebody's thinking about it. It seems like less people realize that than should. Like, that's a New Japan show. Flair is literally the only WCW wrestler on it. It's only kind of thought of as a WCW show because they end up doing the pay-per-view and because Bischoff and Sonny Ono came over. Yeah. Flair, pretty much. Um, but why would they... Well, also, why would they be running South Korea instead of a New Japan or whoever? Maybe it was going to be in conjunction with New Japan. I don't know. Ugh. Yeah, I don't know what I make of this either way. I mean, had they... Had they done any international tours other than Europe at this point? Do they even do anything uh, other than Europe after this point, other than the eventual Australian tour in 2000, even? No. So, I'm curious what this really was. I'm not sure how convinced I am that this is anything legitimate, so to speak. Who knows, but as a long WCB section, so there you go. Yes, and we still got a lot more to go, but hopefully it'll be uh, less dense, but I'm sure it'll be enjoyable. All right, Bo had to step away for a little bit, but me and Bix are here to uh, go over the international. And well, we'll start with Japan first, All Japan Pro Wrestling. And uh, man, the Land of the Rising Sun had a busy, busy night on April 16, 1994. Oh, God, I didn't even realize what week we <laughs> <laughs> April 16th was a huge night for wrestling. I mean, we could have had a separate this. guest just for this. <laughs> it, it, wouldn't, it would have been two, two shows. No, it would have been. I April agree. 16th. I'm just saying based on the news value. But go ahead. April 16th was a huge night for wrestling in the city of Tokyo as both All Japan and New Japan presented major cards at Budokan Hall, $16,300, $850,000 gate for All Japan, and Sumo Hall. $11,500, $570,000 gate, respectively. 
both selling out well in advance. In addition, LLPW sold out 2,000-plus seat Corken Hall the same night. And that evening, between 1.30 and 4 a.m., not only were All Japan and New Japan on their regular television slots, but All Japan women had a 90-minute late-night show. Very highlights for their March 27th Wrestling Queendom at Yokohama Arena card. So a lot going on if you're a wrestling fan on April 16th, 1994 in Japan. The All Japan show was headlined by the finals of the Champion Carnival Tournament, which saw Toshiaki Kawada pin Dr. Death Steve Williams in 2548 with a powerbomb. The Carnival Tour started out slowly with predictable results and no new faces involved, leading everyone to believe it would be in just another Mitsuru Misawa versus Stan Hansen final. An injury to Misawa, who's probably scheduled to face Kawada in the finals in the original booking, and the two clean pins against Hansen one week before the event picked up interest substantially in the final week, ending up with two men who had never been in the finals before meeting at Budokan. Going to the final two nights of the tournament, Akira Tawe, Kenta Kobashi, Dr. Def, and Kawada all had 17 points. They all had eight 1-1 records except Doc, who was 8-0-1, while Hansen had 16 points, 8-2 record. In Nagoya on April 14th, Hansen pinned Doc to finish up at 9-2. While Kawada pinned Tawe in a match where the winner would clinch a spot in the final in 2020 with a powerbomb. Dot faced off with Kabashi on April 15th for Cork and Hall in the first singles rematch of their legendary match from last year. And reportedly, they had the best singles match thus far in All Japan this year as well. With Dot using the dangerous back suplex, backdrop driver, to score the pin in 2210. All right, so let's go over the uh, Budokan show first. Satoru Saka over Kentaro Shiga in your opener. Yoshinara Gawa over Josh Kikuchi. Rush Kamura, Missile Omoto, and Mighty Inoue over Masao Inoue, Masafuchi, and Haruka Egan. Dan Crawford and Doug Furness over John Nord and the Eagle, which of course is uh, George Hines, the Eagle. Jackie Fulton. Johnny Ace over Timon Honda. Akira Tawe over Johnny Smith. Then Mitsuru Masawa, Kenokobashi, and Junakiyama over Giant Bob. Amori and Stan Hansen. And then your champion carnival final. Toshiro Kawada over Dr. Def Steve Williams. Now, two days earlier, at Aichi Prefectural Gym in Nagoya, we have Satoru Saka going, uh, Saka going to Satoru Saka going to beating Kitaro Shigo Yoshinaragawa. The Eagle over Mighty Inoue. Missile Momoto and Rush Kimura over Haruka Egan and Masao Inoue. The Can-Ams over John Nord and Johnny Ace. That's a match. Giant Baba, Masafuchi, Takawamori over Junakuyama, Kenokabashi, Timon Honda, Mr. Masawa over Johnny Smith, and then Johnny Smith over Masawa in a carnival match due to Masawa's injury. I mean, it's what it says here, but it says Masawa or Johnny Smith, so it's a weird, weird result listing here to have them two back-to-back. I don't know what that means. Maybe it was a non-carnival match that they had a match. But Smith got a win over Masawa in a carnival setting since he couldn't compete in the carnival. I don't know. That's what it says. Stan Hansen over Dr. Death, and then Kawada over Tileway. And then Cork and Hall on the 15th. Yoshinarigawa over Torosako. John Nord over Timon Honda. Mighty Inoue and Rushkamura over Ruka Ega and Masawa Inoue. Johnny Ace over the Eagle in a champion carnival match. Junakiyama, Masawa, Masawa and Shokakuchi. Shokakuchi over Can Ams and Johnny Smith. Akira Tawe, Masafuchi, and Toshiro Kawada over Giant Baba, Stan Hansen, Takao Mori, and then Doc over Kabashi in the Carnival main event on that show. Wow. Yeah. I mean, there's some great action on these shows here. And, uh, 
He had the Dot Kabashi Korokin match. It was a hell of a match. It wasn't as good as the 93 match, but it was not too far behind. And then Kawada and Doc in the finals was a hell of a match. So, uh, yeah, All Japan is just blazing right here. There's, 93 is one of the you know greatest in-ring years ever. You know, that they're 1993. And 94, pretty stout as well at this point in time. Would you concur? Yes, I would. Um, although we're right at the switch to the half-hour TV show around this time, right? We're going to talk about that in just a minute, actually. Oh, okay, good. Um, now, if <laughs> I'm... next story. I'm remembering right, I am trying to find, which remind myself which observer this is in. Um, this is the year where the Masawa quote-unquote injury is the one where they kayfaved all of the boys, and it was a worked injury, right? Well, Neck I mean, injury. the thing is, is he's, he's supposedly injured, but he's still wrestling. But this is the neck injury, right? But he's wrestling, yeah, he's wrestling in, and he's wrestling in, you know, trios matches. But it's the injury I'm thinking of, right? The Doug Furnace thing? I, I think so. Okay, so for the, we've gone over it in depth in, before, but... Um, the deal there, it, I forget if it's in the Masawa bio, the Doug Furnace bio, or whatever. Um, Furnace gives Masawa the Frankenstein, or Masawa allegedly hurts his neck, taking it wrong. Um, allegedly this messed up the booking for the whole tournament. Furnace is a wreck over it. Han Hansen is browbeating him for injuring the top star. Then Masawa summons Furnace into a room, makes everyone else leave, takes off the neck brace, kind of makes a gesture out of kind of moving and adjusting his neck around, then puts the neck brace back on and sends him away. It was a work, so they wouldn't have the complicated booking, or so the booking wouldn't have to be as complicated by Masawa being in it. But he wasn't supposed, well, I'm not sure if he wasn't supposed to tell anyone, but then as Hansen's brow beating him again. Doug is like, "No, you don't understand. I just went in. He showed me it was fine. He was fine. It was a work to, you know, do what we just said." And Hansen replies like, "Oh, and now you're making that up so you can feel better." Tremendous. <laughs> Pro wrestling, everybody. Uh, March twenty first, ninety four is when the injury happened. Okay, in the well, single, the, in, the, the thing happened. The carnival, his carnival match with Furnace. Yes. Okay. So, yeah, said the uh, furnace was in the dressing room when word got out. The next day, heard it was heard it was bad. His recklessness of doing what was I uh, considered a dangerous move and only put the company's biggest strong card out of action and hurt him, but had screwed up Baba's intricate booking plans. All Japan was very much like a team that rallied together, trying to keep his place in a very competitive market. By presenting the highest level of competition in the world, guys going to get hurt. They worked hurt. You have to really be injured badly for a top guy like Masao to complain. Let alone take weeks off during such an important tournament. And don't think Furnace didn't feel guilty. He's beating himself up mentally, getting yelled at by Stan Hansen in particular, the top foreign star and locker room senior. And Masao heard about how badly Furnace was getting it, and also how badly he was feeling about it. So the next day, he, Furnace got a message from one of the young guys. Masao wanted to see him. Furnace now felt worse than ever. He was staying through the dressing room where Masawa and the other Japanese wrestlers were. Masawa was sitting in the chair with a neck brace on. He looked terrible. Now Furnace looked, felt worse than ever. Masawa made a signal. Everyone was told to leave the room. Now Furnace was feeling really bad. 
Once everyone left, Masal stood up, took off his neck brace, moved his neck around and smiled. He didn't put back on his neck brace, sat back down in the chair. Furnace was told to leave, let everyone know they'd come back in the room. The plan for the, tr- the carnival tournament for the rest of the year was to make Kawada and Doc into single superstars and triple crown champions while protecting the title, Stan Hansen, Kenakabashi, and Akira Tawe. Rather than have Masao with the champion suffer a few losses and diminish the title that by that time he had held for almost two years, as the most protected world championship in pro wrestling, the idea was to make him out of the tournament and give everyone forfeit wins. Kawada would pin Doc, hoping to class the final match. Masao would return with a bad neck, lose the title to Doc, whose big move was a backdrop driver, which impacts the neck. That would lead to Doc defending as Kawada, who would then beat him for the title. Kawada's, which is Masao's top rival, would now be at a higher level as he went with the Carnival and Triple Crown, but he did so without ever being Masawa. Furnace went back to the foreigner locker room. Hanson went back after, but he heard the company's top star screwed the tournament. Furnace told him the story of what, he had just ha- what just happened. Furnace knew enough that he shouldn't tell the story to anyone, but obviously telling Hanson we would stay in the company would be okay. Hanson's response that now Furnace has not only hurt Masao and screwed the tournament, he was now lying and making excuses for what he did. <laughs> so there you go. You so know what I mean? Was, uh, that was which issue with the Observer? Oh, I don't know. Okay. I saw it on Reddit. Oh, okay. It was from... The- well, it's from an observer, though. Mm-hmm. But um, the uh, the thing is, Masawa, if it was his idea to do that, it was insanely smart, you know, to get him out of there so these other guys could get made without him having to do jobs. Then when it came time for him to do the job, it made it more important. Mm-hmm. Protecting the title. Yep. Which is... Why I I understand why all Japan and New Japan would put their heavyweight champions in the, the G1 and Champion Carnival tournament, but boy, it, it, it's a risky move. I you know uh, unless uh, unless you're doing it to build up, you know the next challenger. Which New Japan, to their credit, even though I'm not always a big fan of it, always does. Yeah, but you know. All Japan kind of had it set up where, you know, the carnival kind of would determine who would be there, who the winner would be the normal contender anyway, more often than not, if it wasn't the champion. So. Right. I don't like, I mean, I don't like this idea, though, that, oh, oh, the champion enters and it's like, oh, he can pick his next opponent. It's like, who cares? Really? Like, just, why do you have to have the champion? I mean, I guess, you know, at least right now, without as long as the G1 is, I get that you don't want to sideline the champion into trios matches and stuff for the whole tour but i don't know it just always struck me as weird and also i feel like if you're gonna do it if you're gonna have the automatic because that's a thing in new japan you know for the ghetto era it's been an automatic tokyo dome title shot the winning the g1 so like i feel like there's a point they're they're gonna have to have a point where they actually do it where they actually have the champion win yeah because otherwise, it's just kind of, I don't know if lame duck's the right word, but. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I was liked that it one even year, less. Well, go ahead. There was that one year, I can't remember which year it was in the 2000s, where the champion wasn't in the G1, and they had, and it was always in like cool matches, non-G1 matches. I can't remember which I, year I rem- it was. I vaguely remember what you're talking about, but that's also before it was an automatic title shot. Yeah. Um. I, I I felt like I guess maybe because it's single elimination I don't know I liked it less for the New Japan Cup at least this year where you know again it set up a new cha- it set up challenger uh, 
challengers in that, um, you know, Naito is going to get the next shot after, you know, Sabre, who won the tournament, because he beat Okada, but... I don't know, it just feels off. I, I, I'm not a big fan of it, but at least they do it the right way. If you're going to do it, they're doing it the right way. Yeah. All right, so about All Japan Television. Akira Fukuzawa is no longer the television announcer. Such a show was moved to 2.30 a.m. The new 30-minute show is really sad to watch as it's simply too short. The first 30-minute show was on April 2nd, aired 22 minutes of a 30-minute dock in Kawada Draw, and it cut away right after the bell, and that was the entire show. Yeah, that <laughs> moving to 30 minutes in this time period was like the worst possible timing for that. And then you lose Fukuzawa as part of that, too. Ugh, not good. Yeah, and to it, it, just to make it clear, because there used to be confusion, Fukuzawa is the straight-laced lead announcer. Um, yeah, we're, we're glasses. Yeah, what's his face that people used to call Orgasm Man was the David Crockett-like guy who yelled everything. I forget his name, though. Um, you don't have to look it up, I'm just saying. Because uh, there's always been some confusion over that. Um, also, we no, need no, to no, say, Fukuzawa was the guy that was the yeller. No, 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 no. No, someone corrected the record on this a few years ago. I remember reading it. You sure? I think so. Or was it that Fukuzawa... No, 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 no. Okay, you're right. It's that Fukuzawa was the yeller, but he was not the lead announcer. Yeah. Okay, you're right. You're right. I got the two parts mixed up. It was I he was play who, by play. He was the play by play guy. But there the straight late. I forget who the other guy was. His name, but the straight laced. Well, you walk Yes, 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 yes. I mean, like okay. You're, here's where you're. I mean, Fukuzawa was there, but he wasn't. He wasn't the guy. Like the Masawa Jumbo, that was Wakabayashi. So, new hero is Wakabayashi, not Fukuzawa. If you, I'm t- if you right, so. right, but the but the dee, dee, dee guy is Fukuzawa. Yeah, but Wakabayashi was the was you know the guy that was calling Masawa Jumbo and blah 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 blah. Yeah. So. Also, we didn't mention and, uh, how great Kawada Doc is either. <laughs> and in fact, in reading this. Fukuzawa, I mean, Dave, I think Dave's confused. Wakabayashi was the one who left because of the 30 minutes, supposedly, that or something. That sounds right, I think, yeah. Um, because Fukuzawa stays till 97. I believe so, yes. Um, so, yeah, that that's where all this gets confusing, is Dave gets a mix-up. So it's Wakabayashi. Yes. Now, real quick, was we kind of glossed over it. Um Doc Kawada in the finals is the best Doc All Japan singles match, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Especially since I don't think the Kabashi match ages very well anymore. The 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 Kabashi <laughs> match from the year before. Hisa the uh, Hisa said that uh, Hisa once said that Hiroshi Hase said in the media that if I meet Fukuzawa in person, I probably punch him in the face. <laughs> Now that's funny because he hated his announcement so much. Wow! All right, TV ratings on April sixteenth saw New Japan do a one point six, All Japan do a two point one. The latter rating is phenomenal since the show aired from two thirty five to three oh five in the morning, and also went head to head with All Japan on Fuji, All Japan Women on Fuji TV, which aired the Yokohama Arena show. 
No ring available for that show at press time, but suspected outright all Japan because they aired the Akira Hokuto Shidobu Kandori versus Bold Nakano Anchakam match. 2.1 at 2.30 in the morning. <laughs> yeah, not bad. Wow. Wow. Amazing. But again, I mean, Japan was t- was all you know was also telling that story. You know, their their networks didn't matter what these ratings did. They didn't want they didn't want wrestling in their prime slots. Nope. Just because wrestling does great ratings does not matter when it comes to program heads who don't want wrestling featured on their networks. Even in a culture that had decades of highly rated primetime network wrestling. In that culture, even more. Yeah. So keep that in mind, folks. Just keep that in mind. Just because wrestling does good ratings or perceived good ratings doesn't necessarily mean that it'll be accepted by network heads, new network heads that take over. Networks. All right, New Japan. New Japan's gamble of booking Sumo Hall for a one-night junior heavyweight tournament called the Super Junior Cup paid off big. As even going head up with the champion carnival, Delore is seeing a tournament with top lightweight wrestlers from seven different offices. New Japan, Jushin Liger, Wa Pegasus, Shinjiro Otani, Dimalenko, No Samurai, FMW, Ricky Fuji, Michinoku Pro, Great Sasuke, Super Delphin, Takamichinoku, AAA, Black Tiger, FMW, Hayabusa, CMLL, Negrocasas, Social Pro Wrestle Federation, Masashi Motegi, and War, Gato. Sold out weeks in advance and featured a few surprises. The tournament was a bone thrown to Jushin Liger, who was given pretty much free reign of who he wanted to invite from other offices and controlled the finishes. The tournament was designed to get the top star of the regional Michinoku Pro Wrestling Group based out of the northern island of Hokkaido. Grace FMW and Michinoku Pro combined independent junior title over as a new star and challenger for Liger and others in New Japan. After receiving a bye, Sasuke pinned El Samurai in a very good match, and the semifinals pinned Liger in a huge upset in 1809 of what was said to be the second-best match of the tournament. In the finals, while Pegasus, Chris Benoit, who had earlier beaten Black Tiger, Eddie Guerrero, and Gato, pinned Sasuke in what was said to be the best match on the show in 1846. Gato, War's last-minute replacement for the injured Masao Orihara, imagine if that didn't happen, was praised by New Japan President Seiji Saguchi after the show and scored upsets over on Dean Malenko and Super Dolphin. The other upset, but one that actually makes political sense, saw Negro Casas losing the first round to Ricky Fuji. Since Fuji's come back for New Japan's round robin junior heavyweight tournament later in the year, and Casas isn't. Fuji has pushed something of a heel name in FNW. While as talented as Casas is, and Fuji isn't, he doesn't work Japan regularly, so the, the result, while surprising that one would have thought Liger would want to face Casas in his first round match, does make sense. Pegasus upon winning was presented by New Japan President Seiji Sakaguchi with the old WF Junior Heavyweight Championship belt that had been the possession of Tatsumi Fujinami since the belt was retired years ago. Saguchi said because tickets sold so quickly for a junior heavyweight tournament that next year's Tokyo Dome show on January the 4th will be a one-night heavyweight tournament and be the biggest heavyweight tournament in the history of Japanese wrestling. Well, I mean, there's a tournament on that show, but it's one of the worst tournaments in the history of wrestling. (laughs) Yeah, there was a tournament. That's about it, though. It wasn't the Super, yeah. Super Jacob. That's for it, sure. It was, I forget what they needed, but it, it's it's the tournament with Sting versus Tony Palmore. <laughs> yes. Yeah, not good. Terrible. Um, What was the name of that fuck? 
Um, I was on Battle 7. Uh, the BVD, Final Countdown BVD Tournament. It only had, it only had uh, four guys. Yes, Sting BVD against uh, beating Palmore. Yes. Yeah, Sting beating Tony Palmore, Antonio Noki beating Gerard Gordo, and Inoki beating Sting. Yeah. Okay. But anyway. All right, Super J Cup. Round one match, Gato over Dean Malenko. Delphin over Shinjiro Otani. Black Tiger over Takamichinoku. Samurai over Motegi. Ricky Fuji over Casas. Liger over Hayabusa. Quarterfinals. Gato over Delphin. Pegasus over Black Tiger. Sasuke over Samurai. And Liger over Ricky Fuji. Then Pegasus over Gato in the semifinals. Sasuke over Liger. And then Pegasus over Sasuke. Dave says, judge from the magazine photos, the J-Cup should be incredible. Particularly flying moves, a great Sasuke. This show is, is one of the all-timers right here. Um, I remember the first time I saw this, which was not too long after it came out on a commercial tape. And holy shit. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I had seen... I had seen the Minjinoku Pro guys were just little. Holy shit. I mean, Sasuke became like one of my favorite guys immediately watching this show. I mean, what a performance he had. And that 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 final. I mean, I knew how great Chris Benoit was, but good lord. Just, just fantastic. Fantastic stuff. And then you got the Gato story. I mean, it's like, look at this guy. And then you come to find out that he wasn't even supposed to be in it. He replaced Orihara. The match wouldn't have been like if Orihara had been in this thing. And how different that, I mean, this is a like a game changer for Gato's career. Yeah. We may not be, we may not have Gato booking New Japan Pro Wrestling, if not for this show. I mean, and the impact he made. Between him and Jado leaving Universal for war and this show... He is a complete non-entity in Japanese wrestling. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Um, okay, so as far as, you know, what else we have here... The, the, the thing I want to talk most about is the Liger-Sasuke finish. So, for the few of you who have never seen the match... Um, Sasuke goes for a springboard move, slips... Liger points and laughs, picks him up for something else, and then uh, Sasuke hits a Hurricane Rana roll-up for the win. I, f I get the impression most people think Sasuke legitimately messed up the finish. I never thought that. It's not. I don't think it was ever reported anywhere in the Observer or anything. I think it was the intended finish. Yeah, I agree, because... Okay, well, there's two reasons. One is just that for the story they're telling, it's the perfect finish, right? Mm -hmm. This fairly yeah. obscure indie guy comes in. He's this big daredevil, goes to try to finish Lawler, Lawler Liger off with a springboard. <laughs> Slip, well, Liger used to be a junior heavyweight. Uh, <laughs> slips, Liger gets cocky and gets pinned. It's too good. Now... Uh, one of the last times I brought this up on Twitter, I forget if this person said they had read it somewhere or what, and I thought it was interesting. They were under the impression that it, w it wasn't the planned finish, but that it was Liger's fault, and that Sasuke improvised the finish 
because Liger was out of position for the springboard move, which is an interesting way to look at it, because if it is messed up, it probably is Liger's fault, because if you watch it, Liger is nowhere near ready for Sasuke to do anything to him. Would you agree with that? No. Yes. So, I don't know if I'd buy that, but I think either way, I don't think there's any way that that finish was a was the result of Sasuke slipping by mistake. No. I don't think there's any way that's it. And again, again, like I yeah, I always thought that was the planned finish because it just it it's too perfect. It's too perfect for this match, for the story, for the story they're telling in this whole tournament. Where Ghetto had the upset mm-hmm. run too, and you know, in the other semifinal, you know, and just lost and quit quickly to Benoit too. That now you have this other underdog against this other top New Japan junior heavyweight, and it's like, okay, we're getting this again. You know, he's gonna beat it. Liger's gonna beat him, and then it's gonna be Liger and Benoit for the first time in a while as the finals. But no, he. You know, whether it's outsmarts Liger or whatever, gets the win. So, like, I, and also it, it feels like it fits Liger's booking better for that to be the plan finish, just in general, mm-hmm. his overall booking style. So, yeah, I mean, this is to get Sasuke over, yes, and to make him a big star. Yes. Um. Now, I have a question for you about the show in general. I did want to mention real quick. He's not wearing it anymore at this point, but uh, our friend Roy Lusher captured on video recently he went to a lucha show and talked to felino and asked him the question we've all been wondering for decades for the answer to when your brother did his first few new japan tours why was he wearing your outfit but without a mask did you see that and see what the answer was no because benoit was so big and jacked up that he, that uh negro casas felt like he needed the bodysuit to look bigger <laughs> Yeah, Benoit was pretty jacked back then. Yes. So That's funny. Um, the other thing that I want to ask before we move on for the J-Cup, though, is with hindsight, specifically with hindsight, do you feel that this show being used as the gateway drug to Japanese wrestling for so many years was kind of a mistake? Because I feel like way? it was. Um I feel like it limited people's views too much and kind of contributed to the whole, oh, you don't watch New Japan for the heavyweights thing. Hmm. I I, I think it... um, I think it was... I don't know if I would... I think I would say it was unfair to New Japan's heavyweights that way. Um, But do you think the canonizing of this show contributed to that at all? Um... Yeah, I could probably see that because, I mean, but here's the thing, though. Um, you look who's in this and, and who at the time who they you got Benoit, you got Malenko, you got Eddie. And they were three of the hottest guys in the business in the mid 90s. And people are, people people want flash. And, and, and see, that's the thing. New Japan heavyweights, as much as great as they were, what they did wasn't flash you know it was all storyline storytelling angles it was you know uh, you know brawls at that point in time in the mid 90s 
the Japanese wrestling fans were looking for one of two things. They were looking for, you know, high spot, spot fest, or they were looking for all Japan's brutality. I mean, that's, that's really what the, the main thing a lot of them were looking for. New Japan had this, you know, old school 80s style vibe to it in an era where the fans weren't looking for that anymore. American fans were in the Japanese wrestling. You know, I mean, or or they were looking. Okay, so three things. They were looking for deathmatch style, FMW, IWA, Wing, stuff like that. So you had your junior spot fest, your all Japan heavyweight, you know, strong strong style, uh, King's Road, excuse me, King's Road uh, style, and your deathmatch style. New Japan heavyweights didn't fit in that. It was, you know, they had all the other stuff going on. So that, that's what that was. It was, I think, a battle of the time and place. See, because New Japan heavyweights, New Japan heavyweights weren't, they weren't coming over here. They weren't being pushed, they weren't being pushed over here. You look at what, you know, WCW had the juniors and they brought Shono Amuda in. But when Shono Amuda came over here, they're like, shit. So, you know, you had that, you had on. And then you know when you got your your, your biggest uh, your biggest um, smart fan promotion is ECW, right? So what are they trying to do? They're trying to make deals with all Japan. You know they're bringing in the guys that the foreigners that work all Japan, and they want to bring Kobashi in, and that's thing. And who else are they working with? They're working with deathmatch companies. So and Michinoku Pro and shit like that. So it's all about who it's time and place. And who was working with who? And New Japan heavyweights were out in the dark in that way. Just were. And now people has people have kind of, you know, adapted their views and and stuff like that. They've grown. And they go back and watch that stuff and like, wow, I didn't appreciate this at the time. Yeah. Look how heated this stuff is. But I would also say that I'm like, the- I'm like that in a way. I'm like that because I was I was not the biggest fan of New Japan heavyweights in the '90s either. I I have you know my, I was more a fan than others, but I I look forward to the junior stuff more than anything else. The the one last thing I'll say before we move on though is that I feel like what you said about what people were looking for. I feel like there was some of it there, but they just decided that it wasn't like. You've got Hase as your technical suplex machine guy. You have Hashimoto as the brutal stiff kicker. You have Tenru mixing in. Like, well, well, okay. Hase, Hase's, Hase's best stuff is before this. As a heavyweight, you know, well, you're you're yeah. you're using you're using this show as a barometer. Okay, hmm. so you're using this show as a barometer. Hase's best heavyweight stuff is before this. Is like ninety so, to ninety two, yeah. Yeah, all of them's really, except for Hashimoto, all of them's best heavyweight stuff is before this. You know, at this at this point in time is when everything is is built around high station gun. So it's mainly brawls, angles, stuff like that. It's not about technical in ring wrestling. And again, that's what people. A lot of people were looking at Japanese wrestling for either one or two things. Like I said, the crazy deathmatch style or hard-hitting all Japan, Spot Fist Juniors. Right. They're not looking for 80s-era heavyweight stuff. It's just the way it was. And 
I mean, who's setting? Who's the who's the the guy that's setting the taste for all this? Dave Meltzer. Dave Meltzer. He's the leader, and then you got the, the torch and stuff like that too. That are you know that are, are in line with with Dave. You know. Oh, oh. I, just realized, I just realized what it is, and then we'll move on. I think. I think a lot of it is that the high station gun feud was so prominent for so long, because. If you look at the newsletters going back in, like, before 93, there's a lot of really highly praised New Japan heavyweight stuff. Yes. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, it really starts with High Sierra Gun and War. Yeah. When that whole thing's going. And it's not, it's not pushed by the newsletters. You know? Right. It's just the way it is. But, anyway... Yeah, so let's continue. Speaking of heavyweights, uh, aside from the sellout Sumo Hall Junior Tournament, uh, crowd sweep were again really weak with a few below 1,500, largely blamed on no foreign talent on any of the house shows. In the eight-man tag on April 14th, Takayuki Azuka, Kira Nagami, Riki Choshio, Tatsumi Fujinami went against uh, Power Warrior, Masahiro Chono, Keiji Mudo, and Hashimoto. Nagami scored the biggest pin of his career, pinning Power Warrior with a German suplex. And then on uh, April 15th at Okazaki City Gym in front of 3,700, we have this show. It's Tachikojima and Tatsuhito Takahiwa over Tokamitsu Ishizawa and Yuji Nagata. Nagami Nazuka, JJ Jacks over Haishi Guns, Akito Saito and Great Kabuki. Jushi Tunnelaga over Shinjiro Otani. And, and real quick, you know, since Otani's mentioned here, best wishes to him. He had a terrible incident happen to him over the weekend where he was... Uh, German suplex into a corner on a Noah show yeah. and lost movement for a period of time. It oh, was wait, carried has out. There been an update? I, I haven't seen late... any updates. No. The, okay, so the so, last update I saw, I think, was from Meltzer on Twitter because we're recording this segment on Tuesday. Um, yes. Earlier today was, I mean, all the updates I had seen so far was that he still hadn't regained the movement of his arms or legs. And the last update was that he was going in for surgery to keep things from at least getting worse. Yeah, so best wishes to him, man. Yeah. What a career he's had. Good Lord. Yeah. And not it, to was, go, go. it was still going pretty strong, you know, after all these years. I mean, I saw man. him, you know, I mean, I saw the guy live, you know, three years ago. And I, I hadn't been keeping up with, you know, zero on however many you know for however many years but it's like to be heavyweight otani there's not that much that he really needed to be able to do and he was fantastic you know for those collective shows three years ago especially the eddie kingston match which um for people who have not seen that that is on the aiw youtube for free and kingston uh tweeted it i think on monday so people people just need to check that out i just hope that these older wrestlers in japan you know take this as a learning uh a learning moment yeah and also be careful turnbuckles like buckle bombs and stuff make me nervous but if it, it feels like people learn from the sting stuff and are mostly like they do it in a way that's safer now and more controlled i don't yeah. like the idea of doing something like a german into the buckles where the person, yeah. like, even if you're fully trusting of the safest wrestler putting you there, they have so much more control over you with a buckle bomb. Yeah. 
you know, and even then I'm not crazy about the buckle bombs, but the buckle bombs, you can at least see that there's a lot more room for error on the it's... German into the buckles though. Like, ugh. well, the thing, the, the thing is though, is, uh, you ain't, you ain't young anymore. <laughs> well, that too. Just, just, be, just, just be careful. Your body's not the same it was 25 years ago. So be careful. Yes. Uh, Battle Royal, El Samurai won. Then we have King of Kamara Shiro Koshinaka of High Seas Shigun beating Hiro Saito and Noriyonaga. Then we had Hiroshi Hase beating Michiyoshi Ohara. And then Hase team with Chono to beat Riki Choshu and Tadao Yasuda. And then Mudo Power Warrior and Shinoshimoto over Masahiro Samokido and Tetsumi Fujinami. So, I mean, you look at this, and it's one of those things where, again, there's it's not anything the heavyweight seat this time is not glamorous. But you watch you watch this stuff and you're like, wow, the crowd's into it, you know. And there's it's heated and stuff like that. It's just not it's it's not glamorous, you know. That's what it is. Mm. It's just it's right there. All right, since no angles involving Antonio Noki can be covered on a television show, I guess because he's political. They did a newspaper angle where after Spring Stampede, Muda went to Florida and spent the day with Hulk Hogan, who was advising him on how to beat Anoki. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I guess that advisement is what Dave was mentioning earlier about steroids. <laughs> and how about mm-hmm. and how about Dave mentioning that he's he's uh, come to the USA to get steroids, and he's meeting with Hulk Hogan. <sighs> so Muda Muda's getting a piece of the Tampa pipeline, I see. <laughs> I mean, okay, I was trying to figure out what I can say based on what's known publicly and what's not. Um, but yeah, like we know, like, look, we know there were at least the allegations out there. Um, that is interesting that Dave made that comment to that liked especially. <laughs> well, also, Chris, what's, what's allegedly coming up in a couple weeks at this point before it gets delayed, the steroid trial. Yeah. So D- Dave, sure. Dave, I think has an inkling that there's a certain thing coming out in the trial, isn't it? It doesn't he? <laughs> Yeah, he knows stuff. Now it doesn't end one of them like lines out in the trial, but you know, yeah. let's just say we don't know exactly what compelled him to testify. Yeah. Well, especially now to testify to testify yeah. to splitting steroids with Vince the way he did, since that's what Vince was being charged with. To be clear, like that he would test yeah. that he would testify to what they were trying to convict Vince of. Yeah. All right, let's go to Frontier Martial Arts Wrestling. They're playing their own junior heavyweight tournament and asked each fan for reciprocal help, sending Liger and or Samurai plus wrestlers from Mexico and Michinoku Pro. I don't think that happens. It does not. Uh, Mr. Danger, Mr. Masanaga returned to FMW when the recent tour started on April 17th. The gimmick is that Masanaga agreed to work in the opening match every night as a way to prove himself. Well, let's go to Furukawa City Gym on April 17th from 3520. Mr. Danger defeated young boy Masato Tanaka. Yukari Ishikura over Mayumi Shimizu. Kusaku Goshigawara over Mr. Chen. Dr. Luther over Koji Nakagawa. You mean Japanese deathmatch Com- legend Luther, the original death dealer. Yes. Uh, Combat Toyota, Sharshashuya, Crusher Mad Damari, and Safari Mac. Defeated Megumi Kudo, Miwasato, Yukinabeno, and Keiko Iwami. Then Gorosurumi over Demion Seiseiseis. And then we had an 11-woman battle royal won by Miwasato. 
featuring the women that we mentioned earlier and Bad Nurse Nakamura, who didn't have a match in the show other than the Battle Royal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Big Titan, the Gladiator, Mike Austin, and Ricky Fuji over Tarzan Koto, Katsutoshi Niyama, and Choden Senshi Battle Ranger Z. And the main event, Street Fight, Asushi Onida, Sambo Sako, and Mr. Gansuke over Mr. Pogo, Hitsukatsu Oya, and Hideki Asaka. So there's FMW. Yes. Uh, real quick, Naga. Yes. Um, is this his first? So he returned to FMW. They mean from being in Wing since Wing opened, basically, right? That correct. So this is the first time he's really in FMW as Mister Danger, right? Yeah, he was there before as uh, Karate Guy Masanaga. Yeah, as one of uh, Masashi Aoyagi's stablemates. Yes. So. This, New era. I mean, Wing did well for a smaller indie, but you know, this is this is his really big rise to prominence now that he's in the yes. midst of the independent. This is, yeah, this is where he really starts making his name. Yes. All right, then we have a promotion called NFW. What the NFW. hell is that? Fukushima City Gym on April 18th from a 1280. We have Hiroshi Osumi over Keisuke Yamada by a TKO. Of course, that's Black Buffalo Keisuke Yamada. June Kikawada over Fujita. Ichiro Yaguchi over Yoshiko Abe. Hiroshi Nakura over Yuichi Fukaya. Kuichiro Kimura over uh, Hideo Takayama. Ito. Yoshiro Ito over Masashi Oyagi by referee's decision in your main event. Hmm. Well. So, well weird show. Yeah, nothing particularly interesting. You know, uh, the battle of the future Super Uchi Power and Bad Boy Hito's kind of interesting, I guess. But... Yeah. That's about it. A lot of short matches, yeah. too. Yes. Are, then are we, we go assuming... to now. Well, I was just going to say, with um, Ayagi main eventing, something with rounds in the opener, are we assuming that this is some kind of martial arts or vaguely shoot style theme show? I would think so. Okay. Well, let's go to now. Osaka Farisu Gym on April 16th in front of 1,100 fans. Apollo Sugawara over Mr. Nasty. Who? Goro Shirumi. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Nasty. Goro Shirumi over Hotef Min. John Hawk over Wild Irwin by disqualification. <laughs> so that's JBL over Wild Irwin. And our main event, Kendo Nagasaki and Kishin Kawabata over Alice the Pug Porto and Rod Price. Okay. <laughs> so... There's your Texas connection there, here and now. Yeah, well, and also, uh, always good when a Japanese promotion has, like, five native wrestlers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I believe uh, this... Kendo is the, is the foreign booker, because he... Yeah, he was living had... in Texas. Yeah, it... yeah, I think between tours he was still living in Texas, right, at this time? Yeah. So yeah. he always, whenever he was the foreign booker anywhere, after he settled into Dallas... He was usually booking Dallas guys wherever he did that. Yes. Pro Wrestling Crusaders. Yes. They ran Yokohama somewhere in Yokohama on April 16th in front of 300 fans. We got Masao Matsuoka over Akinori Sukioka. That's uh, that would be, uh, Common. Ki- yeah, yeah Kachimbo Common. Violence Revenger over some guy named Baru Tabita. Hey, doesn't he follow both the, of us on Twitter? <laughs> the future survival Tabita. Yes. He is very wait, he is very diehard. He is just Japanese, 
rock and roll alert, knock out all enemy, attack all monster. I believe I got it right, didn't I? The t-shirt? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> but it, so he's very he's young here, so he ain't survival yet. Then we have Shogun K.Y. Wakamatsu over Hirofumi Miura. Hopper King over Matsuyama. That's all it says. And a barbed wire chain match. Shunji Takano over Uchu Power X. That's of course, Pro Wrestling Crusaders is a... Yeah, well, it's a Takano promotion. Yes. It, it's a very... This is a very Pro Wrestling Crusaders show. And, uh, oh, Hopper King is the shooter slash uh, common shooter super rider. There you go. So, uh, PWC, folks. And, uh, Bix, you, you were talking the other day about the Takanos. And, I, you know, I want you to go ahead and talk about it on, on here real quick as they come up. Uh, people might not know this, but uh, the, the Takanos are uh, half, half black. Yeah, someone, I couldn't find it, so I don't want to say who, uh, shared the picture recently that, like, I forget if their dad was was an American military guy or whatever, but their dad was a black man, so that also explains why they had fairly dark complexions for Japanese men, and also uh, probably also why uh, Co why George built as Co you know when he was Cobra and Stampede was built as Ugandan. I guess that's why. But I, it came up, you know, I brought it up because I thought it's interesting when you really think about it especially especially relative to someone else in a similar situation like Aja Khan like hey it wouldn't be more George than Shunji because Shunji's career fell off so quickly but like they they probably need to get mentioned more on the lists of great black wrestlers in the history of the business especially George oh yeah you know absolutely and, I mean George Takano as a Cobra is a hell of a wrestler yeah, and, and Shunji was and Shunji was Japanese Barry Wyndham. I mean, as far as you know, where he was at, his age, his size, the way he wrestled and looked. I mean, he was like a Japanese version of Barry Wyndham, and ended up being basically a Japanese version of Barry Wyndham, <laughs> even though he didn't have the peak that Barry Wyndham had. No, no, and he he got his money from uh, Megami Super instead of from uh, rich older women, I guess. Yeah, and then he got fat, which Barry Wyndham got fat too. But Takano got fat and just quit caring. Yeah. So oh, yeah. Um, as I'm as I pulled up this show on Cage Match, also okay. So this Cage Match says it's Ho Death Men on the uh, Now Show, not Ho Death Men, but that's Poison Swatter Julie. Well, that's interesting. So okay, that's interesting, man. All right. Uh, oh, and Mr. Nancy we... does have a Cage Match page too. And okay. that is just an American wrestler named Mr. Nasty. There you go. All right. Wing. And a Japanese-style shooting angle, Yukio Kanamura and Shoji Nakamaki got into a fight in the Shinjuku area of Tokyo as a publicity stunt. Both men were part of the wing group, which is folded, with most of the wrestlers joining Fita Quinones' new IWA. Kanamura was the only wing wrestler who didn't jump. And the angle is he's mad at the rest of the rest of them for abandoning his good friend Mickey Abaragi who headed up wing oops so there you go hey, ja well I think it's funny that Dave said in a Japanese style shoot angle when it took place in Japan, Japan. Uh, yeah I did notice that too <laughs> <Dave>. <laughs> because he never uses that term that way in Japan he always uses it if it's in America or sometimes Mexico <laughs> I would hope it's a Japanese style shoot angle it's in Japan 
All right, let's shift over to the <laughs> good lord. Let's sh- shift over to the work shoot side of things. PWFG. They ran Cork on April 12th for the 1400 fans. We had Shreech Vinaki over Daisuke Ikeda. Kesumi Yasuda over Minoru Tanaka. Shreech Vinaki over Kesumi Yasuda. And Yoshaka Fujiwara going to a time draw with Yuki Shikawa. Not bad as far as talent in this show. <laughs> no. Um, and let me check something real quick. How early in Ishikawa's career is this? He's probably a couple years in. Fairly early, though, right? Especially because we're early yeah. in the post-Pancrase era. About a you know, year or less in. Um, okay, he debuted almost exactly two years earlier. April 1992. That's what I thought. So, this is... And this is kind of his coming out party as a pushed guy. That he's able to take Fujiwara to a draw. Oh, yeah. Uh, Actually, no, it's not. It, well, actually, wait. What's the date on this show while I'm looking at Cage Ranch? April 12th. Okay, maybe not then, because this is a 10-minute exhibition. Well, still, it's an exhibition. Yeah, It's a draw. He didn't lose. Yeah. Now, this is also the time where he starts working New Japan a bunch. Yeah. Well, it was just yeah. on the last tour for several years. Yeah. Well, there's, a, there, there's like, you know, some of the New Japan guys are working here on the undercard stuff, so... Yeah, there's kind of a trade going on here. Yes, and Fujiwara's working dates over there, too. In New I mean, he's working everywhere, just about. Yes, yes, yes. But, uh, you know, promotion is shifting around, you know, now that they're building up the younger guys, now since the Pancrase guys are long gone. Um, yeah. But, you know, you can tell. It's kind of interesting, like, when you really think of it, like, Fujiwara must have been, like... Just from these guys where we know he was the one who trained them, and I know he trained other people in New Japan and UWF too, like, that guy must have been a hell of a trainer. Because all well, of the I mean, battle arts guys are his guys. Yeah, but, I mean, all you gotta do is look at the class of 1984 in New Japan, and that's his guys. So I was gonna say, so I was gonna say what years is he in charge of the dojo with uh, Kotetsu Yamamoto? The early 80s. Okay. I mean, all those guys that came out in the early 80s, are his guys. Okay. So, yeah. So, we've got... Himikotetsu Yamamoto. You know, I just realized, too, you know, as far as his... You know what? To me now, I'm... I forget. Is he still on the Observer Hall of Fame ballot? Uh... Don't know if he... I can't remember if he stayed on or not. If he stayed on... Uh, I mean, maybe if even if he felt had fallen off. I might mention it today. If... You know, when people, like, I guess maybe because it was mainly, like, your shoot-style fans that were pushing his candidacy, including the training and stuff. If you include, I mean, in general, we probably do need to look at the head trainers of the dojos more in terms of their case. But, like, early 80s New Japan, then some of the UWF originals, then these, like, honestly, you can well, say for the New Japan <laughs> stuff alone, he deserves to be a Hall of Fame based on it, as his work as a trainer. And then you go add in, add in him being a historical figure in terms of shoot, establishing shoot style and everything, too. Well, fuck, I mean, Maeda, Takata, Yamazaki, they're Fujiwara guys! Well, that's also why they jump, too. And another one we need to remember, too, even though he didn't debut in New Japan, was trained by Yamamoto and Fujiwara, Ultima Dragon. Yeah. I mean, it's one reason why Fujiwara was not a heavily pushed guy. 
as a wrestler because he was the trainer. Yeah. Even though and they didn't do that. Even though he's respected as a worker and especially as a tough guy, as one of Carl yeah. Dodd's two greatest students, his main role was being the you know one of the two head trainers at the dojo. That's yeah. He would work the shows, but he worked Mick Carr. Yeah. And yes, for those of you who don't know. Carl Gotch considered his two greatest students as far as legit catch wrestling to be Fujiwara and Joe Malenko. Yeah. Not bad. I can tell you that. Yeah, and, you know, for a guy who was, a, you know, that tough, I guess it shows you how little ego Joe Malenko had that there are no real stories about him showing it off, either in fights or not, or even using it to mess with people, like, it's all by reputation of what Carl Gott said. Well, Joe Malenko was a nice dude. I mean, yeah. he wasn't somebody that was an ass. Well, he Even also had a, he, he had enough of a real life outside of wrestling that you would hope that he was more grounded. Well, he was a guy that, you know, you knew that you, if you fought with him, you get you going to get fucked up. So there's that too. Guys knew where where they could go with him. So there's that. All right, rings. The feud between rings and UWFI grew stronger this past week. Dave's not clear of the details, but apparently Kira Maeda did a magazine interview and got hot about Yuko Miyato, the UWFI wrestler who handles much of the company's business affairs, and said something to the effect of, if he fought Miyato, he beat him 200 times out of 200, and then if he caught him on the street, he'd prove it. And made some remarks about Miyato's family, which apparently resulted in some kind of civil action followed by Miyato and UWFI against Maeda. Since it appears a lawsuit was filed, this angle doesn't appear to be a work. <laughs> well, my Maeda would probably would have beat Miyato two hundred times out of two hundred, so there's that. He's he's telling the truth. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, Miyato though. Remember though, Miyato was also the head trainer at the dojo and was considered one of the tougher guys. Yeah. But <laughs> wasn't Miyato yeah. also the best shoot coach too of the UWFI guys? Yeah, but who's his? Who's one? Who was his teacher? Wow. Akira Maeda. <laughs> oh. So there you go. Uh, speaking of UWFI, the Tokyo-based Union of Wrestling Force Internationals attempt to do another second pay-per-view show, taped on April third in Osaka and airing on April sixteenth, was a major flop. For numerous reasons, most important among them being no follow-up hype on whatever success the first preview show had in October, an inability to clear the show with requests and viewers' choice due to those companies carrying a karate preview the day before, and pro wrestling, Spring Stampede the day after, limited availability. And absolutely no hype, virtually no advertising, viewership this show had to rank among the lowest in the history of wrestling preview events. Based on calls here, very few sisters even offered the event. And those who did, there was no advertising. While responses by those who did order the show were generally positive, Day's feelings were in the sh- were in the middle, leading up to the Nobuka Takata Kazuo Yamazaki main event. While both men showed quickness and skill in overall seven minute match that was more pretty more than pretty stiff or brutal, and that didn't build up much heat, let the show flat. Especially considering these two have had numerous classic matches against one another over the past eleven years. There were improvements technically from the first show, as more interviews with those who could speak English were added. Including interview showing guys that appear to be totally brutalizing their matches. With the elimination of Jim Doherty, the announcing improved. Play-by-play man Bob Papa was adequate, although nothing more. While color man Gene 
Gene Pelk, excuse me, once again was excellent in explaining strategies and did a better job in differentiating the Japanese from one another. However, it appeared the announcing track was put on in the studio rather than live, as there was no excitement in either announcer's voice, so fans unfamiliar with the style, as virtually all would have been, had no exciting, exciting spots to pop for. Unlike the first show, America Pro Wrestling wasn't mentioned in derogatory fashion or even hardly at all. The problem you'd identify in the United States is this. In Japan, this thing started in 1984 and it slowly evolved into something more and more realistic. Even to the point one promotion, Pancrase, is either the closest thing to or is really shooting. But it didn't start out that way and people wouldn't have understood the beginning of the style was as it is now. It was a slow evolution process of the style that took 10 years so the fans are on the same page with the promotion. Now, the more realistic it gets, the least spectacular it gets. That's really if the change is gradual and it comes at the same time the audience is learning. There's no problem with that. But for American fans, it's like coming to a movie in the last 10 minutes and being told to understand the finish when you miss the whole story. Moreover, unlike Japan, nothing can make it in this country without television. Unless this group gets television to garner an audience, it's spinning its wheels no matter how good its preview presentations might be. Also, the ultimate fight, which is a true shoot, shows time after time in the mixed matches. A ground fighter or wrestler with knowledge submissions will beat a standing striking fighter because it always goes to the ground, and the striking fighter is a fish out of water at that point. However, UFI puts over the striking fighters above the wrestlers because the striking is more spectacular than mat work. Having said all that, this second show was a disappointment because of the match quality. Although most of the matches were part of a summer long tournament, the existence of the tournament was never acknowledged. Vader's name was never mentioned. The only hype of the building or building for the future was after the match, after the final match. Bob Hopper rather calmly mentioned he'd like to see Gary Albright against Takata and Gene Pelt, said they're working on making that match in a few months, which theoretically should be in their next pay-per-view. The show started with Yuko Miyato against Yoshiro Takayama, a six-foot-four bodybuilder type. The two worked a believable match with the finish coming out of nowhere with a smaller man winning convincingly, but it was a good opener. Next up was totally out of shape Russian Vladimir Berkovich against Gene Lydic, a American who has extensive UFI training. The match was really bad because of Berkovich's condition, and also because it appeared because of his superior wrestler skill, then the shoot, he could have controlled Lydic on the map forever, but did the job at the end. <clears throat> then came Tatsuo Nakano against Hiromitsu Kanahara. Kanahara had fast feet and bloody Nakano's nose, but Nakano won with an arm lock in a good match. Then we have Bad News Allen, who in his younger days certainly could have torn apart most of these guys. Again, had the worst match on the show, which was a chore. His opponent, Kyoshi Tamara, incorrectly called Hiroshi Tamara by Papa, <clears throat> is one of the most exciting wrestlers in the group. Allen was listed as being 45. He's really 52. It was never alluded to as being a pro wrestler. As old and out of shape as Allen is by this group's standards, his reputation and strength is such that Tamara had a lot of respect for him. However, Allen has really bad knees, had some hard kicks to the thigh and knee. It was no moss time. It was then announced that Dennis Kozlowski was injured and couldn't appear, but in order not to disappoint those who were to see him, what a concept delivering what was promised. They had a match from August 93 with Kozlowski versus Yuko Miyato, in which Doherty and Lutez joined Pelco commentary. Since it was taped a year ago, this is a part of the show in which American Pro Wrestling was referred to in negative terms or even acknowledged. This was a tremendous match and the best example of this style in the entire show, with Kozlowski countering brutal kicks with great suplexes and winning at the end. Next up, back on uh, the live, well, kind of live show, was Dan Severn of Michigan against Masito Kakihara, a much smaller younger wrestler with incredibly well-conditioned physique. His obvious Severn's wrestling ability was far too much for Kakihara, even though Kakihara was great with his feet. And Kakihara went over with an Achilles tendon holding a fair match. Yoji Anjo then met the star of the show, Soviet Victor Zangiev. 
who obviously had no idea what he was supposed to be doing and was out there entertaining with nip-ups and flips and all those things removed from this style, but popped the crowd big. Zangief, who the Russian character in the Street Fighter arcade game was patterned and named after, bet he's not getting his fair royalty checks <laughs> from his days with New Japan, was excellent, but lost in the end. This is realistic enough to suspend disbelief, but splash it up to pop the crowd at the same time. Then Gary Albright followed up by destroying Billy Scott in 211 with four devastating suplexes. This was the in-ring wrestling version of the Chicago Street Fight the next night at Spring Stampede. Albright's very effective at coming off as an unbeatable monster, and his interviews are great for his role as well, building up that he won the singles match with Takata. If this group had television built up a following in the United States, Albright would be a hit, their biggest star. Takani Yamazaki followed trading suit submissions back and forth quickly in a pretty high spot like opening, but the match was too short and it had the brutal kicks expected. Yeah, I mean, Gary Albright, it is amazing how no American promotion used him in this what, era. You know what, though? I saw someone, um, saw someone bring this up somewhere fairly recently, and I don't think it's wrong. And I'm not saying this to speak ill of the dead or criticize Gary Galbraith, because by all accounts, he was a super nice guy. But, I mean, especially as we saw to a degree when he was in All Japan after UWFI closed, if you take away Gary Albright, you know, legit suplexing people on their heads, what do you have? I mean, he could work. I mean, he wasn't the greatest worker in the world, but he could work. He could do things. He could, but yeah. I get what you're saying, that it doesn't seem like anyone even saw his potential, really, after his territory runs. Yeah. Because, he, yeah, he, he worked Stampede, he even worked Memphis for a short time in 89. So, yeah, he had, he, I mean, he he had some time in the in the in Indies, or mm -hmm. Territories, whatever you want to call them. And, um, well, it was Territories. It was Stampede, uh, Memphis. Yeah, it's Territories. Those are the those are the two, yeah. But but yeah, any, any other thoughts on the show? If if it, if you remember watching the show, I've never seen any of the three shoot wrestling pay per views. Um, I I've seen the Bushido stuff that aired in Europe and other places where the commentators were Jeff Thompson and Ted Pelk, who I believe was Gene's son, but never I. I think there's one maybe online of the shoot wrestling shows, but yeah, I've never really seen those. Um, you know, first one did really well because they promoted it so hard on Monday Night Football and was well, wait, was it Monday Night Football or was it the big Sunday game? They they promoted it during major NFL games. I just forget which. Yes, yes. And then it just didn't sustain because they weren't putting the same kind of advertising budget behind it after the first show. Um, should also add, though, that that third show later in the year, the last one, um, I, I would need to look back at Meltzer's obit for him to see if this is what actually led to him getting the UFC job, but it's also the introduction of, uh, Jeff Blatnick being a color commentator in this kind of setting, because Shoot Wrestling 3 airs, what was it, like about a month before UFC 4, I think? Mm-hmm. So. Oh, the other thing we should note... Uh, Johan Promotions, or whatever it's called, is who's behind the shoot wrestling shows, and these days they're better known as the company that handles most of the closed circuit, meaning bars, restaurants, and movie theaters distribution for UFC, AEW, 
WWE started to do it a little bit again. I forget if it's with them, but they are the main player in that kind of thing in terms of like live movie theater events and other stuff that is considered a closed circuit distribution. Yeah. All right, the link of the Nebraska Star and Journal each ran featured stories last week on former University of Nebraska wrestler Gary Albright to pipe up the pay review. In the story, Albright threw several knots at pro wrestling, saying he's no longer marketable to pro wrestling because promoters know that if they ask him to lose, he'd say no. Those promoters are just looking for muscle heads who don't know how to wrestle. We have legitimate wrestlers in shoot wrestling. Well, maybe that's why nobody used it. <laughs> I don't know yeah. if he actually would be doing that, but sure. So, there you go. All right, let's go to the women's side of things. Joshi, Tanya Harding will not be wrestling. Harding's lawyers broke off negotiations with all Japan women's wrestling after it became evident the sides weren't going to come to agreement over financial terms. While all Japan women publicly claimed they were going to offer Harding nearly $2 million to wrestle, when they came to the table in Oregon and put their cards on it, the initial offer to Harding was reportedly $380,000 for 50 dates at $94.95. <clears throat> it was reported in the major Japanese weekly early last week. The negotiations between the sides had ended and showed that Shoshikuni Masanaga, the vice president of the company, who had traveled to Oregon for negotiations, came out of the trip with nothing but a lot of salmon. <laughs> on April 20th, the group called a major press conference to saw more than 100 newspapers, TV stations, and magazines represented which shows how much publicity the group was able to garner for their attempt to sign Harding, confirming what had been reported, that Harding had turned down their offer. At the press conference, the company still claimed the offer was for 200 million yen, or 1.936 million American. The company stated to the press that for November 20th, Tokyo don't show the total payoffs to the wrestlers were total 100 million yen, 968,000 American, which sounds like a financial work of equal proportions to the figures released about offering Harding. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Well, uh, it's a good story. It's a good story, at least. Yes. Now, this also leads to how this is one of my holy grails. I doubt we'll ever find it, you know, short of it just being randomly uploaded, probably by someone who's not a wrestling fan on YouTube at some point. When Entertainment Tonight covered this story, they used, I don't know if it's early Photoshop for Cytexing or whatever, to put i believe at the end of the story they showed bull nakano and then they had a mock-up they did of tanya harding with her face painted up and her hair done up like bull nakano amazing yes yes and uh, well excuse me bulldozer nakano yes as as i learned from <clears throat> finding that uh, nbc nightly news story for 1986 dump truck matsumoto bulldozer nakano which makes sense because they're in a stable with crane you and uh condor i think was what a type of a scissor lift for condor saito yes and no i will not make a scissors joke all right all japan women wrestling three nose brother uh, <laughs> on uh, april 19th in choshi japan on uh 13 in front of 1350 uh handicap match tomoka watanabe defeated chaprito sari and kumiko mikawa kyoko in over mima shimona eskomina and yumiko hota over bull nakano and karito Toshiya Yamada over Sakashigawa. And Aja Kong and Suzuka Manami over Manami Toyota and Takako Inoue. So, there's them. LOPW, that show Dave talked about earlier at Corkin Hall, drew 2,120 fans on April 16th. Not bad. Well, full yeah. house for Corkin. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Shinobu Kandori beat Mima, Mima Shimoto twice on this show. 
Then we have Rumi Kazama, Harley Shido, and Michiko Nakashima over Jinu and Yukari, Mizuki Endo, and Utaku Hozumi. Miki Honda over Michiko Omakai. And then an elimination match. Mikiko Futagami, Eagle Sawai, and Ringa Tateno, and Yashikura and I defeated Kanbai Toyota, Sarsha Shuya, Kershamayo Damari, and Supari Mack in 36-43. Okay. There you go. Yeah. Um, LPW just always struck me as a strange promotion because it, there are at times good wrestlers who come through their system. Like, because Omakai was from their dojo, right? Mm-hmm. But for the most part, it's such a one-woman show and a showcase for Kandori that it's kind of weird. You know what I mean? Like, Well, of course as, it is. I guess in the landscape I mean, of the other women's promotions, because you, you didn't really have other women's promotions that were like that at the time, for, at least. Well, of course it's a showcase for Kandori, you know? Yeah. That's what it was, always was. Well, this will be the part of the show where I say it's time to go to halftime. But it's not. This is a two-part show, folks. It's so big that uh, all the stuff that we have left in this show, there's no way we could fit this in the one part. So we're going to stop here, and uh, we're going to restart coming up in uh, other North America and then take the rest of the show home. But we'll be back with us for the U.S. section. And, uh, yeah, it should be uh, a hell of a show, folks. So Make sure you listen to that, as we have a lot of fun clips to play from Smoky Mountain and USWA, and a whole lot more. So, uh, is it for part one, part two? Listen to it. <laughs> 